You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast And for the next 60 minutes we'll be talking about Doctor Who So you don't have to that too painful? Well, I thought you said we were going to sing. Oh, very <laughs> funny. I was expecting, I was expecting, that was more plain song. That was like, <clears throat> that was sort of, you know, tonal. It was very good. Well, yeah, this, this episode was... was it, that, that no, was... No, it was awful. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> this episode isn't going to be like Lay Miz, where we all have to, like, do the next couple of hours singing. You yes. Start. You start. Yes, <laughs> Sing. I can I can barely speak, let alone sing. You don't want to hear me sing. <laughs> no, you've just. I think I'm I'm writing this on my mat. He just offered, didn't he? He did, but I think it's going to be more Mamma Mia than Les Mis. <laughs> I think what I was actually saying was that I, I I really think that Lee and Simon should be singing the next episode. Really, oh. you started singing now, Andy. Because it's, <laughs> it's better than was, it's was better there, than was, was, there a, was there a musical level? <laughs> <clears throat> we should move on. Hi, JR. Just heard the latest podcast. Some interesting points. I sometimes wonder what it would take in terms of change for me to stop watching. I think when the show was going to come back in 2005, Hugh Grant was rumoured to take over. That would probably have done it for me. Brilliant. Yeah, okay, let's stop there. And on that point, Hugh Grant as the Doctor, what do you think? I think, I think Hugh would have been, particularly at that point... He had just enough profile, but with just the lack of a Hollywood career to mean that he could have he could have done the series. He'd have done one year. Like he would have he would have gone in a different direction. From, a very from different, different direction. But it would still be. I mean, you know, it would be all right. I think it would have been fascinating. Yeah. What's the, what's the Nick What's the Nick Hornby film he did? Man and about a boy. About a boy. Because that was playing against type slightly. He was still a sort of, he was still the same class, but he was a, I don't know. Well, the best know. example of something for Hugh Grant to try and work out how his doctor might be is probably Extreme Measures. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Have you seen that? I have indeed a Michael Apted's film about That's right. medical... Um, shenanigans. Medical shenanigans that shouldn't have been happening to homeless people, as I recall. With Gene Hackman. Yeah. So was it his only, it's his only sort of heroic... No, it's not heroic, it's the opposite, really. He plays a put-upon night doctor in a sort of after-hours A&E. He gets caught caught up in... uh, Yeah. (coughs) Sarah Jessica Parker is the female leader. In Hugh Grant, with the people who are coming in during the after-hours, works out that there's something fishy going on. Mm. And he follows the clues and works it back to 
Gene Hackman, who's like this hero figure. Mm. Yeah. And, um, well, it all goes very pear-shaped. And then the last 20 minutes is basically a big Hitchcock pastiche. Kind of chase thriller, basically. Yeah, and yeah. it all goes very sort of North by Northwest-ish yeah. at the end. Okay. He's, yeah, he's Not a... North by Northwest, actually more um, Dialogue for Murder. Yeah. Okay. He's, um, no, he's, he's, he's very watchable in that. And your, your point about About a Boy, where he plays this... Um, not very nice guy, basically, mm. because he's just, um, you know, kind of shacking up with yeah. women and he's found this particular way. It's Tony Collette, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yeah, who he sort of ends up having a kind of relationship with, but particularly sort of um, um, kind of um, getting on rather well with her kids, kids' son. Do you know my problem with the Nick Hornby novels and films? I mean, insofar as it goes, because I eventually gave up on him, he never redeems his characters. He gives mm. them happy endings without redemption. Mm. And I find that problematic. Yeah. And that goes right back to mm. Fever Pitch, of course. Mm. Anyway, but, 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 he, but he could, he could. <laughs> I've, never read, I've never read any Nick Hornby. I liked... High Fidelity, but it came out at just the right time for me to like High Fidelity. Well, yeah, most people who like High Fidelity like it because of the record shop thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the story, John Cusack's mm -hmm. character is an absolute bastard throughout the entire film. Yeah. And not only does he get the girl back at the end of the film, but he also gets to go off with Lisa Bonet for half the film as well. <laughs> it's yeah. like, hey, this is what being an absolute bastard gets you. Yeah. That's Hugh Grant's career, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. But I like Hugh Grant. I'm. I have a soft spot for Hugh Grant films. I like. I like Mickey Blue Eyes. I like. I like music and lyrics, which is the one he did with Drew Barrymore. Oh, I've not seen that. It's you. It's it's awful, but I really like Hugh Grant films. I can't help it. If you, I hated. Oh, come on. I was sorry. just going to say, if you rewind the clock back a few years from About a Boy, my, my wife tells me this story. I didn't actually go to the cinema with her at the time. We were living in Greenwich at the time, and um, she went to the cinema with a few friends to see a film. The film that she wanted to see was all sold out, so they ended up going to see Nine Months, oh, Chris, yeah. Chris Columbus film with... Um, uh, with Hugh Grant in it, and I think um, Julianne Moore. Oh, is it Julianne? Oh, that's right, Julianne yeah, yeah. Moore. And I'm really glad that I wasn't there all the time because basically she, uh, my wife, was effing and blinding all the way through the <laughs> film because she could absolutely couldn't stand um, uh, Hugh Grant in this, and she, she was basically well, I won't say the word on the podcast, but basically, um, you know, the air around her must have been turning blue with all the cinema goes. Wow. She was just basically, oh, she absolutely hated him. I know, I know somebody who was at university with him, and apparently he is he is an a hole. Because oh, really? Yeah, he was back then. Doesn't he, he, might, he might, but maybe extreme fame and money has made him less so, but I doubt it. Well, who knows? Well, I Didn't think he more play... recently he could have been, I think he could have been a good choice. Doesn't he play the oh, bad yeah. guy yeah. in the, um, oh, what, what are they called? The films with, um, oh, God, now I've blanked on the actress's name as well. Oh, good. The Chicklet films. Chicklet. About the girl who works in the publisher's office or whatever it is. Oh, Bridget Jones. Oh, yeah. Bridget Jones. Yeah, yeah. 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 He yeah. plays the bad guy in those, doesn't in, he? In, in some ways, he would have been as unusual a choice for the Doctor as Christopher Eccleston was, I mm. think. Mm. Weirdly. Of course, Hugh Grant has previous on this because of Curse of Fatal Death. Yeah. 
Oh. And of course, he only gets about two minutes in that, if two minutes. Yeah. But I think he's really good yeah. in the two minutes. And he shows you kind of how he could have taken mm. on the Doctor. In a parallel world? Mm. Who knows? He was in he was in Lair of the White Worm as well. Oh, I saw that again oh, recently. Yeah. <laughs> Ken Russell. God yeah, bless yeah. him. <laughs> it's a beautiful film. It's bonkers. It's, 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 it's fabulous. I like all the mm. best Ken Russell films. Oh yeah. I mean he doesn't he doesn't pull his punches. You know, when he when he go, when he goes for something. <laughs> I can't honestly. I can't honestly think of a Ken Russell film where I've come out of the back end of it and thought, that was a good film. The Devils is a good film. Do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. so I over the top. Mm. I loved it. Yeah, it but uh, to me, over the top doesn't equate with good. It might equate with enjoyable, but I, it doesn't necessarily equate with good. Sub- it depends on the subject matter. So if you're going for a sort of carnivalesque, if, if it is a sort of carnivalesque, riotous atmosphere that you're presenting, then get Ken Russell. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, was that the right film to do that? Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Definitely. Come on. But I don't know. Possess, possess it's a long nuns? time since I've seen it. What's more riotous than Possessed Nuns? Sounds like the worst kind of B-movie <laughs> to me. I used to hate the Hugh Grant, Richard Curtis films. For weddings and, mm. but then I don't know. I think you get to a point where you just kind of make your peace with them and realise that actually they're just really well-made films. Yeah. yeah. So what can I say? What does the email say, Jr? Well, the email carries on and says, uh, "I think the tone has been mostly spot on since it came back. If it was like the New Adventures adult-type novels, it would have been awful." And also, if the Paul McGann series had come about, I don't think it would have had the charm. But then, do Doctor Who fans really know what we want? Its fresh randomness is part of why we love it, I think. Fans of things just demand the same thing you've already done. There's a quote for that, but I can't think who said it. And that's from John Hull. I, I think... <clears throat> well, I think that... It's difficult to start talking about unknowns. So to start talking about a film based on the McGann movie, or based on a series the new based on the McGann series movie, based, yeah, or based on the new adventures. I think once it's starting to be produced, I think because we've it changes. You, we've all read the, the the description of what the McGann series was going to be, <clears> and it sounds completely outrageous and weird and remakes of Talons of Wang Chiang and various things like that. I don't know if it would have been Talons of Wang Chiang. They were talking about resetting, restaging Talons of Wang Chiang in New York, I think. That was oh, really? one of the one of the proposed episodes. Well, but but it could have been really interesting. Yeah, it could. It could. And I think they would have shaved off the the more outrageous aspects of of it. And it would have just ended up well, working. It would have been in New York yeah, and yeah. Yes, I think that's Streets the of New York yeah. with a Killer on the loose in the night time. Yeah. That yeah. could have been really good. Yeah. Yeah. The, do you know about this? There I was talk at one point that the yeah. McGann, if it had gone to a series, would have been like a 22 episode series, obviously because it's America. Mm. And it would have been basically remakes of a lot of the old classic series stories. All right. I don't know, actually, if it had gone to a series, if that would have happened. Because that was being talked about before the yeah. TV movie. And then the TV movie, obviously, is... An entirely new which story, is why, which is so. It I think when when, the, gone that when people talk about a McGann series, they're thinking of this 
this kind of outline, which if it had gone to the series, they would have, the BBC would have been, had input into it. And Yeah, well, I think the BBC's input into the TV movie is what sank it, to be honest. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Although the, well, I'm about to write about this for a book, so I shan't go into it in too much depth, but mm. it was a, in a nutshell, it was supposed to sell Doctor Who to a new audience. And the last thing you need when you're trying to sell something to an entirely new audience mm. who doesn't know anything about the property mm. is 26 years of backstory. So if you take the first five minutes off the TV movie, then it tells, you know, it's got the regeneration, which perhaps isn't the best way to start it. Yeah. But basically, it tells a half-decent story. And it ends on a note that American audiences would have recognised from Superman the movie. Doctor Who fans went, oh my God, he turned back the clocks and brought everybody back to life. Mm. People who've never seen Doctor Who but have seen Superman the movie, exactly when you get to that ending, that's exactly what they're expecting. Yeah. Yeah. So you take the first five minutes out with all the continuity mm. and with it starting in the TARDIS and you start with that Sylvester movie. McCoy. Yeah. yeah. But no, you could even start it with Sylvester McCoy if you start from the scene where Yiji To and his friends mm. are witnessing the gangland stuff. Mm. Yeah. And in the middle of this gangland thing, this blue box materialises out of nowhere. A bloke steps out, gets shot, mm. and then turns into somebody else. Yeah. And instead of having all this backstory, yeah. and you've already been told who this guy is, mm. suddenly this guy's a mystery, and when he turns into Paul McGann, mm. you're invested in wanting to find out who he is. Instead of already knowing. Exactly like in 1963 when we didn't know anything about... William Arnold. Yeah. yeah. And we, we start kind of in the middle of a story, effectively. You know, a mystery, a young girl who doesn't quite fit at school and the teachers go back to her home to uh, find out what's going on. You don't, you don't give any backstory. The backstory comes in dribs and drabs yeah. through the next few years, I think basically. I, I agree, but I think it also needs time travel in there somewhere. I think what that what the first what an unearthly child did was immediately go back in time mm. after that first story. That's true. Yeah. And the TV movie couldn't do what Rose did because Rose Rose works because you know that there's going to be in fact the beginning of two thousand five Doctor Who is those first three episodes. It's not Rose. It's actually Rose. Well, and, Rose and the end of the, end world, of the world were originally going to be shown as a double dead. bill. Yeah. Okay. And then they changed their mind and showed it. But it's the three dead. with the young quiet deads, uh, not the yeah, yeah. young quiet dead. That's that's what constitutes a Doctor Who reboot. But having said that, Rose still played on his own, and mm. people were still invested mm. enough. But to they, come back they, the they, have, yeah, they have the advantage of you know being a British. But you knew that yeah. gone before. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the TV movie needed some sort of because time travel is the vital. Well, the vital thing about the TV movie them. is, at the end, he does turn time back. Yeah, but it's not traveling. I know it's not the it's, same thing, but you yeah, can't yeah, in a pilot you yeah. you've either got two ways to go. Mm. You can either do it as a time travel story. See if I was gonna do a Doctor Who pilot like that, I would start in the present day and I would have something that had been set up in the past but could only be resolved in the future. Yeah. So you'd have to go so you'd have to have two kids, a boy and a girl college-age kids, some mystery has started and these two kids are thinking, what the hell's going on here? And then there's this guy in the blue box and they're like, 
he seems to be solving something to do with the mystery. So they latch onto him, end up in the blue box, and he has to go back to Roman times to find out how the problem originated yeah. and then realises he has to go 100 years into the future to solve it. Yeah. So in the space of an episode, you've got 20 minutes in the modern day, 30 minutes in Roman times, 30 minutes, 100 years in the yeah. future, and then 10 minutes at the end back in the present day. Yeah, and I think that's what, I think that's what it lacked, is that sense mm. of, I mean, even if they started in modern-day San Francisco and travelled back to 1930s San Francisco, or do something about the earthquake, maybe, that would have been, that would have been something, but it would have costed a hell of a But, as a mystery about a character, mm. a TV movie, if you shave off everything that happens before their gangland bit, yeah. it works. It's just the yeah, stuff. Yeah, it, it works as an individual story about a mystery but, about a character. A, a mystery about a character, but it doesn't. It doesn't make the viewer think this could make a a series because you're watching it and all you're seeing is effectively an X Files episode. Well, yeah, setting. but then X Files made a series. But what you need to know is that he can travel in time. Maybe anywhere that's a surprise in space and time you get in the next and, episode. But except there wasn't a next episode. Well, yeah, that's the point. And there wasn't one planned at that point. It was a, it was a, effectively a pilot. Yeah, it so was. So all they had was this one, this one thing to sell the Doctor Who concept as a series. And the Doctor Who concept as a series is anywhere, anytime. That's well, what they is. banged into us in rows. At the very end, he said, can you go, go anywhere in time and space? Well, at the end of the TV movie. In fact, they were you just need a line like that yeah, in yeah. the TV movie. Or you need to show but, to show it because but you can't. The way they set the TV movie up, you could effectively have ended up with a doctor who doesn't go back or forwards, who just solves mysterious alien crimes across North America in the modern day. The Pertwee era. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. You see, the all you need to do is set up a strong enough... It's like any series. Doctor Who, we know, is about adventures in time and space. Yeah. But if you're resetting the series up in North America, it doesn't need to be about adventures in time and space. Exactly the same as in Spearhead from Space. Yeah, yeah I think it needs... I think it does need to. I think it needs to do that to be marketable. Because it was competing against sliders, sliders at the time. So these, these yeah, but are then you're saying, concept. by the same token, that the X-Files isn't marketable. Well, the X-Files is its own thing. If, it's, if yeah, another Doctor, series tries to do the but X-Files... Did, you're then... missing the point here. Doctor Who's being set up for a new audience, so it doesn't have to be the same thing it was before. It is setting itself up as a new thing. Yes, except it's not a new thing, because a, an individual solving weird crimes across America... Is something that the X Files already has in the bag. I, the, it's the time and space thing that makes the, the series. Yes, and would have done if it had gone to a series. Yeah. But you don't need to sell that in the pilot. I, I think you do. But yeah. well, I mean, the thing is, they decided to go down one route, and obviously the pilot didn't get the ratings or whatever it yeah. needed. Well, that's to, because they lost the faith series. in it. And yeah. put it up against the last ever episode of Roseanne. I think, yeah. It got 9 million people in Great Britain. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the real problem is that, um, I mean, it's, it's tough enough in this country with, um, you know, maybe commissioning a short series, which is what we tend to do here. We'll do, you know, sort of, I don't know, three or four episodes of Luther or, you know, yeah, whatever yeah. it is, or Happy Valley or Cuffs. Uh, and Cuffs was a series that didn't go to its second series. But, um, at least you've got three sort of 50-minute episodes to 
try and establish some kind of um, universe. Yeah. Whereas in, in the States, it's sudden death. Yeah. They do a pilot, mm -hmm. they pile all their money in, all their hopes and dreams into this yeah. one 50 minute block or whatever it is. And it's sudden death. And, they, and if they don't get the right Doctor Who was already cancelled before it was it. even on in America. It's, yeah. it's the reason why most, a lot of, most American series are high concept because they're trying to sell they're trying to sell an entire series in one enclosed mm. pilot episode. It has to be high concept. So yeah. the House, Sliders, The X-Files, all of these series mm, have yeah. a very, very... And they're encapsulated in one episode. And it has to be a really, really strong... And you don't get that here, as yeah. you were saying. Well, so you've got a little bit of time. It's got worse in, in Britain. I mean, you know, 20 years ago... You, you would get that chance to do a second series or maybe even a third and, and, and try and let yeah, yeah. your property build and, and, and gain an audience. Now, you know, it's quite common for, you know, um, series, if they're, if they're not doing well in the ratings, to, to be cancelled at the end of that first series. Or even mid-run. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm sure the decisions are made very early on and then we only hear about them officially, you know, a little bit further down the line. But in, but, but in, in the States... It really is this kind of do or die mentality, probably because there are so many networks, so many production companies and, and producing teams competing for you know relatively limited. Um, it's like that on network television, but on the cable channels, they have slightly more more freedom, I think, or they have slightly they take more risks. Yeah, I think on the on the cable H channels, HBO, and, yeah. and, and now Netflix, I think will yeah. will commission they'll commission entire. You know, products. So it's yeah. like House of Cards, or yeah. you know, The Man in High Castle is, yeah. is something that wouldn't necessarily well, that's not even work. on cable. That's VOD. Uh, so, so through so Amazon, yeah, so yeah, Amazon Prime. I think. Amazon Prime oh, VOD. Nice. Yeah, all ten episodes in one go. Mm. Yeah. So and you don't even get really to good. you don't even get to say halfway through the run, oh, I don't like this, and switch mm. off because it's already there sitting yeah. on your computer, yeah. and it, and it needs to be there because mm. it is one. It's a ten-hour movie. And that's often how people are consuming now because yeah. of the whole TiVo Sky Plus thing that, that they're they're binge watching. They're they're taking a weekend and they're they're watching all the way through the program. So the nature of how people are watching yeah. has um, changed fundamentally yeah. from you know classic Doctor Who era where you did have to wait a week to find out what well, happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, also um, this is this is why it's this is what frustrates me about people who get frustrated about Doctor Who not being made like it was back in the mm. 1980s and 1970s. Mm. If it was made like that now, it would be EastEnders, it would be a soap opera, mm. or it would be a sitcom. But now mm. it's slowly moving, and it's actually moving slower than I was expecting, into this kind of box set territory. Mm. And I would imagine Chibnall will go further. I mean, Moffat started down that route already, um, but I think Chibnall will, will probably complete that. Well, it's down to the BBC, really, about how they put it out. But they did a uh, uh, Gavin and Stacey the second. How many series of Gavin and Stacey were there? Two three, or three? three? I think it maybe was the third one. The last series of Gavin and Stacey, the BBC, and I thought they might start doing this more often, but they didn't. The last series of Gavin and Stacey, the BBC actually put the DVD out before it was on wow. telly. Okay. Right. Or perhaps the DVD came out after the first episode, so you could... And then, let's face it, for a programme that's on telly and gets, say, 8 million viewers, if 100,000 people pick up the DVD, 
that's not really denting the audience figure no. too much. Yeah. But by the same token, it is a gesture towards the box set generation. Mm, yeah. And this was years ago, so I'm amazed it hasn't happened more often since well, then. Potentially that's what they're gearing up with the, the <clears throat> online BBC store. BBC store, yeah. Online distribution. Well, if you put, if you put everything up on iPlayer, yeah. you know, say Magician's Apprentice is on and then iPlayer suddenly has all the other 11 episodes, mm. you're losing out because nobody's yeah. paying for that mm. and nobody's watching it on the main channel. Yeah. But if you put them on the BBC store where people have got to pay for it, A, the vast majority of the audience isn't going to. So they're still going to watch it on the main channel. But B, the ones who do are going to have paid for it. Mm -hmm. So you're winning on both ends. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe the BBC will start doing that now the BBC Mm -hmm. store's up and running. It's interesting times because obviously the BBC's charter is kind of up and, and, you know, long term over the next five years, the way it has to be funded and the way they have to raise revenue for everything, including drama production, is well, up for grabs and it will change the nature of how they, they make and distribute their programme. <coughs> this sure. is why BBC Studios is starting up and why Worldwide is starting to get their fingers into more pies mm. because the trouble is BBC stands to lose programming if it doesn't change the market around it instead of having to adapt to the market that's changing. Yeah. So they're trying to, the BBC are trying to change the way the market works in their favour mm. instead of having to look at what other people are doing mm. and saying, because the box set thing is obviously something that's being imposed from outside. Mm. But if the BBC say something like, okay, let's open our doors for people to produce programmes within the BBC for broadcast elsewhere, Mm. they're actually saying, they're taking the whole thing that ICV and the BBC have got, where they'll use independent producers from outside, Mm. and they're turning it on its head so that it's working in the other direction. And by that way, they'll be getting funds coming in from programmes that aren't even anything to do with the BBC. So it's a good way of making sure that the BBC still has cash flow, even though the licence fee itself is suspended from growing. Mm. So interesting times. It's very interesting times. And, and obviously, when, when Chris Chibnall properly takes over, he'll be in this era when you know, things have perhaps radically changed and how he has to deal with things. At what stage does it become pointless reviewing Doctor Who episode by episode because I got the impression from the last series because you don't know anymore how the episodes are going to connect together what what level mm. particularly with Moffat what level the arc storyline is going to weave through the episode well, so I think we did a good enough job on the Blue Box podcast yeah yeah <laughs> no, no, it's fine except even the Blue Box podcast when you re- reviewed Face of Raven you were re- you were reviewing it without knowing that she was going back. The, it was the first part of a three-part story. Oh no, it was obviously the first part of a three-part story. I don't think it was because it didn't have any of the connections with Gallifrey at that point. But I, think, I think it, it, it finished it ended, with the, it finished with the death of the death of Clara. It finished with the Doctor going into the confession door. Yeah. What wasn't obvious from just watching Face the Raven was that even though if you had an inkling that towards the end there might be some kind of echo of Clara coming back, mm. well, it wasn't obvious that she was going to come back in the way yeah. that she did. Um, oh, no, no. So, so, so it was setting up events that were going to be yeah. solved two episodes later. 
I'm raising questions that can be solved two episodes later. I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of. In, I think there's a lot to be said for you know just kind of because people do it all the time on the internet is to episode by episode to kind of speculate about what's going to happen next yeah, and yeah. kind of feel your way for what the showrunner might be doing in terms of mm. arcs and stuff like that. It's mm. it's kind of a it, you know it it just generates interesting kind of discussion about what's going on. Yeah. Chances are, because Moffat has in the past been very good at um, kind of deceiving people, that you might not necessarily see where something is going. Yeah. Obviously, you know the, the the last podcast that I was on, we were talking about the, um, the the whole of the series from the perspective of having seen all the episodes. Was that so, just after it finished, wasn't it? That was yeah, yeah. About, about an episode. Yeah, it was about a week after it had all finished. Yeah. So we obviously we then had the perspective of seeing exactly what the full arc was, and you know then you can. It's very easy to talk very uh, kind of intelligently about yeah. you know how things are going because you've seen everything that's been on on the TV. In actual fact, it's really it's what makes it really exciting is because with Game of Thrones you know that it's an ongoing story. Mm. So reviewing individual episodes, I'm sure it's done, but it's a little bit sort of, you review individual seasons. It's like something like Lost. Yeah, is a... so you know it's an ongoing story. Mm. But with Moffat's Doctor Who, you were never quite sure whether bits were going to come back or what bits were ongoing, or, or even now, which <coughs> bits are going to be two, three-part stories. He's kind of... You don't know what, what's going to come, and that makes it really exciting. I think, I think it's one of the skills. relatively easy to see that it's happening. I think if, but I think it's not so easy necessarily. I think the thing that Moffat does that's not so easy to see is that everything that turns up in the finale is seeded mm. throughout the series, mm. yeah. but it's usually seeded analogously. So it's not a case of tying up the loose ends. Mm. It's a case of saying, right, if this thing happens in the finale. I want to see it happening, same thing happening, six episodes earlier, to somebody else in a different circumstance, but just so that when you get to the end, that thing's been foreshadowed. So it's got a thematic arc, as as well as a narrative I think the thematic arcs are obviously more subtle and harder to to pick up. So in in, uh, series eight, with Capaldi's first um, series, this whole idea of the Doctor being a general, a leader. It's kind of alluded to in odd lines, you know, Danny Pink saying, you know, he's officer class. You know, yeah, yeah. I know that type. Um, and then it builds up to, you know, to to an actual finale within the, the last episode where we see where that's kind of going. Um, it's not necessarily a, a huge structural part of um, the arc, but it, it, it's more a thematic thing, which is subtler. Um, but 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 just as interesting as well. But I'm also thinking, if I was a viewer who hadn't, who didn't know what the episode titles were, hadn't read anything about it, I was just watching on a weekly basis. Then you wouldn't know about the two part stories. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't know about the the arcs, but you'd still possibly well, be spotting the, them because yeah, you'd that's be an attentive the viewer. Best thing about it I is know, that yeah. it works yeah. on both counts. Yeah. So that if you're following it, you mm. can see things like. Um, oh, I don't know. Here's one example that's kind of the opposite of what I just said, but is there for exactly the same reason. In The Woman Who Lived, mm. Clara doesn't get to see a shielder. Yeah. In the uh, storyline where you get um, all the worst bits of a shielder. Mm. So at the very end of the series, 
Clara's happy to go off with a shielder because she doesn't know the bad stuff she's capable of. But pertinently, at the end of the series, the Doctor doesn't get to see Clara going off with a shielder. So they've kept those two strands entirely separate. Mm. So that Clara's only knowledge of a shielder is from the first episode that she's in, mm. in which essentially she's the good girl that a good thing happens to. Mm. Then Clara doesn't get to see the bad stuff. No. And then in Face the Raven, it's Clara's own fault, not a shielder's fault. Mm. So Clara only has herself to blame. So again, to her, a shielder is somebody who's never done a bad thing, as it yeah. were. Mm. Whereas the Doctor's seen the other side of it. Yes. Well, that's, that's what I was saying last time I was on, that, that season eight, or series eight, is about the Doctor learning to be the Doctor. Series 9 is about Clara learning not to be the Doctor. <clears throat> not learning very well. And not learning very well, <laughs> and, and having her comeuppance, but then being re- rebooted <laughs> is, as Clara knew, a new Clara. But well, the, reason, the reason I love series, I really like series 9, and I think series 9 is going to be, is going to be sort of considered quite highly, is it's such a balanced season. It's got... It's I two, think it's quite two as balanced Star as it could episodes, be. Two Gallifrey episodes. It's really kind of well, well constructed. They've really thought about it. Yeah, I don't balanced. think tonally it's as balanced. I no, I think tonally. I th- that's what I'm saying. I think tonally, it's 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 got a really good sort of. I've, I think it turned out to be a better season than I thought. Sort of in the early episodes, about sort of you know sort of a further way halfway through, I was worried that it was a season that wasn't going to be as good as um series series eight which i thought was cracking yeah Yeah. Um, but it redeemed itself i think in the last half Mm. um you know with some some brilliant um episodes and you know for me one of the standouts was um um heaven sense sense, yeah yeah which is just you know one wonderfully constructed Mm. um piece of um Filmmaking. Well, we were spoiling all the subjects that we were about to talk to. I was trying to steer it back onto. onto I've got a couple of other things to bring up. Yeah, well, we did. I did tell you what the subject was going to be, but I'll tell you what. I was going to. We did series four across the last two episodes, Mm -hmm. and uh, I think people might have been quite shocked to hear me talking about series four because I wasn't very up on it at all. And I said to Simon and Lee afterwards, no, I said to Simon and Lee on the podcast, let's do series three next, because that was the only one of the Russell T. Davis ones we've not done yet. But also, I think there's a point in series three, and it's a specific moment in a specific episode where I think, for want of a better expression, Russell T. Davis jumps the shark. I think there's a moment in series three where something happens that affects everything that happens afterwards and not in a good way. So I wanted to do Series 3 in order to redress the balance, because I really like Series 1 and Series 2, and I don't like Series 4. And Series 3, I like a lot of it, and some of it not so much. But I just wanted to say this, because I'm not. we're not going to do the Series 3 podcast for about a month, and I want to leave the listeners guessing about what that specific moment in that specific episode is, where the series jumps the shark, because it is not a moment in an episode that anybody listening to this will in a million years guess. Okay. And now these two are trying <laughs> to what, what could it possibly be? <laughs> no, I, I gave up trying to work out what it would be when you said no people possibly guess it. 
So, <laughs> um, series three is a game of two halves. Right, I'm writing this article for a Starburst that comes out in about four weeks, but I'm going to say it now because, well, because why not? And you'll be able to read my reasons in about four weeks in Starburst magazine in the one that comes out in the middle of March. I have a feeling we might get a woman doctor with Chris Chibnall. And I have reasons for thinking this. Okay, now you're both looking at me like I'm... No, I'm no. waiting for the reasons. I'm not giving yes. the reasons oh, now. Right. I'm giving them in the magazine. I, we, we talked about this at length um, when we were talking about um, series, series 9 and, and, and the conversation came on to the whole idea of, you know, um, whether or not a new showrunner would, um, you know, take that chance and, and go with a, a female doctor. And I think, as I said at the time... It seemed like um, uh, Stephen Moffat was using every opportunity where a, a regeneration was either talked about or actually seen on screen to kind of prep everyone for the idea that um, somebody could um, change sex in a regeneration. In, in, in fact, in um, is it Hell Bent, um, one of the, uh, the senior Time Lords changes and um, changes back into a woman back into a woman she changes race and yeah gender. yeah so it's yeah, so, race, so race and gender yeah. very consciously like, yeah opening the door and, and it's like every, yeah, every I, opportunity and i i just think he's preparing the way i don't think I, he's oh yeah i think there's an argument that he's i think he's undeniable i think he's cheekily opening the door yeah but i don't think it's a conscious i don't i don't know how i'm not preempting your article mm. but i don't know how you can Anticipate anything Chibnall's going to do. Yet, I anticipate because he quite won't a lot. Have written anything. Mm. I anticipate quite a lot in this article. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, I, but I tell you, I, I on the subject of Stephen Moffat, I think he messes around with that door only to deflect criticisms from people who think he should have done it. Mm. So that he can say to them, "Well, I'm doing it with other people, so I don't." Well. I think he does it with other people so that he doesn't have to do it with a doctor. Maybe so, yeah. Because I think there's an argument that he should have, because I think these things reach... Okay, here's a way, one way of looking at it. I think these things reach a certain kind of critical mass. Mm. If What's the idea of a woman doctor gets floated in the 21st century? In the 20th century, it's a bit different. But in the 21st century, once the idea of a woman doctor gets floated... That's an idea that you can't put back in the box. No. And eventually, it's going to have so much weight behind it that it's going to, like I say, achieve critical mass. Mm. And the next showrunner after that, or whoever, the next time the Doctor changes after that, if you don't cast a woman, then it mm. becomes a really big thing yeah. that you've not cast he's a woman. He's planted the seed, definitely. No, so what I think Stephen Moffat's doing is chipping away at that critical mass. Mm. Because... All the arguments, oh, you need to cast a woman as the doctor, by casting a master, a female master instead, mm. then some of the people who are leaning their weight into that critical mass suddenly go, oh, okay, he's done that. Mm. That's good. That's a positive move. And all of a sudden, those people uh, think that the idea of casting a female doctor is a little bit less urgent because mm. of it. And then he does it again in Hellbent. Mm. So is he actually doing that then to um, protect the idea of a male doctor? 
Well, I don't think he's doing it to protect the idea of a male doctor. I think he's doing it to take the pressure off. Okay. Next time the doctor changes, mm. so that that critical mass well, isn't I... reached, so that if you don't, because this is the thing, if that critical mass had been reached and Chris Chibnall had cast a man, mm. then Chris Chibnall comes under a lot of heavy fire for not casting a woman. Whereas if Stephen Moffat deflects that critical mass and Chris Chibnall casts a man, everybody says, oh, that's okay, we'll probably get a woman next time. It's sort of strangling. I don't think think Chris Chibnall will cast a woman as the next Doctor because I think there's a gap. There's a gap between between Moffat and Chibnall. There's going to be a... Or there's there's a gap between now and... Moffat's final season. But there's no gap between Chibnall and Chibnall. But I think when Chibnall comes in, when the new Doctor comes in, I think BBC will, because the BBC and Chibnall will both cast the new Doctor, I think it would be a... Well, the BBC gets to say yay or nay. I think they'll go down the safe route for this Doctor. I think the second Doctor Chibnall casts could be a woman. Oh, once, I don't once think Chibnall's so. Established, I think the fact that the gap's coming before Moffat cha- leaves... Takes that away. I think changing the showrunner and making the Doctor female, and I've got no problem with the Doctor being female, but it is a risk. I think it is a... I don't think it necessarily is. I, d- I, th- I think it will get viewers, but I think it would... I don't I think, think it's, it's a risk. I think, I think the, the BBC would be too risk-averse to change too much. I think, it's a, I think it's a risk only in the sense that it's never been done before, but then yeah. you, know, you could argue everything in Doctor Who going back far enough, was a risk when they did it for the first time. Yeah, and I just, so. I just got a feeling they'll consolidate. They'll consolidate with a new showrunner. They'll consolidate start. I don't think then, they need and to. And then they'll take risks. I, I think, think they've ameliorated Moffat, ag- what Moffat did. I think they've ameliorated against that by putting it back to Easter and putting Chibnall's first series on immediately. I don't think that's enough. I think yeah, no, no, let me finish. Sorry. By putting Chris Chibnall's first series on a year after Moffat's and having the gap before Moffat does his last series, yeah. you've got an entirely different situation from when Moffat took over and his was the first new ongoing run of Doctor Who for two years. Mm-hmm. Instead, you've got a Doctor Who series that's coming back a year after the previous one which is, as far as the general public are concerned, an ongoing thing. The general public aren't all that bothered about who's running Doctor Who as long as it's on and they're enjoying it. Mm. So, perfect time to bring in the first woman Doctor would be in a series that's going out a year after the series that had come before. And as far as it being a risk is concerned, as I was talking about the critical mass a few moments ago, I think there's a case for saying that by the time you get to Chris Chibnall's first Doctor, which, let's not forget, is still over two years Mm. away, I think you're getting so close to that critical mass by that point, because hell-bent by that point will be a memory three years in the past. Mm. And, you know, the other example, even longer ago before that, The Master, I think by the time you get to Chris Chibnall's first series, it's actually more risky, maybe, you know, from one perspective, not to cast a female doctor. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Hard. Well, I guess only only time will tell. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I've given away yeah. way more about this article right. than I intended to. <laughs> <clears throat> you don't have inside information, or is this just a, a sort no? Of, I don't have inside a, information. A fee, fee, no, nobody nobody knows. knows. Nobody's got inside information because and, and hasn't been unless, unless Chris Chibnall's already made this, his choice. This is why certain people on Facebook at the moment 
who are who are criticizing Chibnall. It's just pointless because yeah, Chibnall has written no a idea what he's going to do. And Chris, Chris Chibnall will approach every project with a completely fresh slate, and and showrunning Doctor Who is a fresh product project from writing the individual episodes for for Russell T Davis and Stephen Moffat. This is an entirely different job. This mm. is a new job, and he hasn't written anything yet. So people saying, "Oh, Doctor Who's doomed because." Because of what Chris Chibnall's written in the past, which That's I don't insane. mind. Which is ridiculous. Yeah. Also, besides, ridiculous. I mean, we're going to do Cyberwoman and Torchwood in a couple of weeks on the podcast with Simon and Lee, but I think most of the first series of Torchwood's problems are production problems, That's it. as opposed to script problems. And that, by that, I mean I am considering the subject of what you write your scripts about as production. Mm. But once you've decided that those are the things you're going to write your scripts about, I think those scripts are about as good as they can be. My problem with Torchwood was it was Doctor Who for adults and Doctor Who is Doctor Who for adults. It's Doctor it, Who just for it just happens to be for children as well. I can see Sarah Jane Adventures, I can understand, because that's a sort of... That's skewed towards somebody who's too young to watch Doctor Who. But Doctor Who is Doctor Who for adults. So all Torchwood did was take... Doctor Who and add sex and swearing mm. which which is like a surface <laughs> gloss of adult the actual themes weren't any more adult than Doctor Who had yeah, especially so it's just a pointless exercise yeah and the I thing quite is, liked it I didn't, I didn't object to Torchwood but if you see the, it as Doctor Who Plus then I think you the, just think why can't you just make a, a Doctor Who more. I think the biggest problem with Torchwood, well, we'll get into this in a couple of weeks, but I think the biggest problem with Torchwood is the mix of characters. Mm. It's just not attractive. No. Yeah. Anyway. What are we uh, talking about this evening? Oh, God. Not yet, because I've still got a couple <laughs> more things to get through. We've been going for how long? <laughs> Three quarters of an hour. It's got to be another long night. <laughs> yeah. Okay, the one. Oh, no, it's because after we recorded the. Series 4 podcast, I always listen back to them before they go out, and I realise that in the middle of a big discussion, that you've heard, Matt, between me and Simon, about um, about whether Russell T. Davis was being deliberately cruel, or whether he was being tragic. <laughs> mm. And Simon kept on bringing up soap operas. And I realised that... I realised, listening back to it, the thing I didn't say was, the difference between a soap opera and something like Series 4 of Doctor Who, is that Series 4 of Doctor Who is telling a story about a person in a finite way. It's 13 episodes to tell a story, and the person who originates those 13 episodes knows that those 13 episodes are going to be where the story ends. Whereas in a soap opera, you introduce people into an ongoing storyline. Soap operas terrify me. I, f- I find them profoundly depressing, because... I, there's only one soap opera I don't find profoundly depressing, and that's The Archers. Not The Hollyoaks. Not Hollyoaks. <laughs> any television soap operas. So you, you have a marriage in a soap opera, and you know that that marriage, at some point, one of the actors is going to leave and the other isn't. So you know any marriage in a soap opera's, opera is going to end with death or divorce or a character moving to Brisbane or Birmingham. Well, Simon's this point was that that's deliberate cruelty. And my point is, in a soap opera, it's not, because you don't start that marriage from the perspective that you're intending to wreck yeah. it. But there's no happy endings in soap operas. We can't have happy endings in soap operas. Apart from the archers, because the actors and the archers 
will carry on doing the archers until the actual actors die. Or if they don't, they can just make the characters silent and withdraw them to the background. So you have characters in the archers who have been in there for 40 years, long after the actors died. They just don't talk anymore. They're still in the, the they're still, series. They're still referenced. Yeah, yeah. Right. So The Archers right. is actually the most realistic, happy, optimistic soap opera. <laughs> I don't listen to it that much. But it is the one soap opera that mo- can be most like real. It's sad, sad that nobody dies in Ambridge then. Yeah, yeah. So when somebody does die in Ambridge, but when somebody does die in Ambridge, right. it's actually a really big thing. When somebody dies in EastEnders, it just means it's Christmas. <laughs> or, or they need to bump up the ratings. And so you don't, you don't get train disasters in Ambridge. You don't get bombs going off in Ambridge. But the, people falling off the roof occasionally. But it's but the point. Sorry, <laughs> that's my that's my theory. But this is right, why I don't but, like watching but, soap. But you said Ambridge is the only place where they don't have unhappy endings. Mm. But the point in soaps like EastEnders and Coronation Street and all the others is. You don't you don't cast an actor unless you know there are exceptions on rare occasions where they bring somebody in, like Kai Owen in Hollyoaks at the moment, where they've deliberately brought the actor in to play a specific role that is destined to have an unhappy ending from the start because that's what he's been brought in to do. But with the regular cast, you don't cast them with the plan that they'll have an unhappy ending. Characters in soaps don't have endings. A marriage that ends in a divorce doesn't end in a divorce so that that's an unhappy ending for those two characters because the chances are those two characters will still be in the soap opera just for another not, five years afterwards. Not married to each other. It's not an ending. No, the only endings no. in soaps are when somebody leaves. Yes, yeah. So, Which is what I mean by a, a, a marriage ending. So if there's a marriage in the right, soap opera... Right, but bring it back to Doctor Who. Point. Yes. With, Do- with Doctor Who, the, the modern Doctor, I agree. I kind of agree with Simon on this one. That if a, if in the more recent series of Doctor Who, if her companion's going to leave, then it's unlikely that she's going to leave to get. She's not going to have a Leela ending. Master did. There's very rarely. Yes, but that was quite. Well, there's no reason. Well, but that Master's have... done that, so Amy they can't. Did? They can't repeat that. Now, Clara did. Amy, Amy died effectively. So. Uh, Amy goes off your, to live your a life elsewhere. She I, makes a choice. Your point, which I agree with, is I think is your point that Moffat manages to have sad and happy endings at the same time for his companions. So they're bittersweet endings. So no, Amy, no, Amy, that's Amy, not my point. You you have to have some way of separating the companion from the Doctor because no, being with the Doctor is so you're much entirely fun. missing my point. Okay, my point was that Russell T Davies brought that character in, knowing and having a purpose. That he was going to give her that hideous ending at the end of Journey's End. Yeah. Whereas Stephen Moffat, he knows where his character's going. And yes, he finds a way to make that ending a lot happier than it could Mm. be otherwise. But Russell T. Davis, my point was with Catherine Tate's character specifically in Mm. Series 4, that when Catherine Tate started Series 4, he knew and she knew that she was leaving at the end of series four. Mm. So that ending for series four was planned before she'd even been in front of the cameras for the first time. Mm. And that's the difference with soap operas is that when an actor starts work as a regular on a soap opera, yeah. you don't have the plan of where that character is going to end. No. So it's not, so it's not deliberately cruel that that character will have an unhappy ending if they have an unhappy ending at the beginning. My point was with Russell T. Davis, 
He knew how Catherine Tate's character was going to leave, so he was deliberately cruel in building her character up from the start, knowing that he was going to tear it away again at the end. I mean, obviously, with any with any head writer, showrunner, that that is going to happen when they realise, because typically at the moment, whether you're a companion or a, or a doctor, you know, you're, you're probably looking at three series tops, really, these days. So... On that basis, and I don't know how they work contracts, whether they do it series by series or whether when Peter Capaldi signs up, there's an expectation and a hope that he will do free um, with an option to go on if he's really enjoying himself. But with that kind of in the back of your mind, you know, if, if, you're, if you're like Moffat, who tends to go for very long arcs that at least go over a season and perhaps spill into... Um, you know, two or three. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, at the back of his you mind, he's, he's probably thinking about endings. Oh no, no, no! But my point is that in series four, if you it's take on compressed, yeah, but it's not just that it's compressed. If you engage Catherine Tate to be the companion, and there's a possibility or even a likelihood that there's a second series, mm. then you can. Tell a story in the first series, like Russell T. Davis did with Rose, mm. where at the end of that first series, Rose gets a happy ending. And that first series as a story has a happy ending for Rose. And therefore, at the end of the second series, that ending is a tragedy, but it's not deliberately cruel mm. in the way that if you engage an actress to be in a series just for one year and... There's no possibility that there's going to be a second year. Arguably, arguably, the end of season one isn't a happy ending because Rose has lost the Doctor. Yeah, but she, she just an even better one. Yeah, but she doesn't know that at the end. The, the, the first series doesn't necessarily end on a... I mean, ends on a sort of a high note with David Tennant. Well, you're splitting hairs still, here. End of well, series no, no, one. I'm, I'm kind of, I kind of agree with you that, that... I agree with you that Russell T. Davis frames um, Catherine Tate's story as a tragedy. That was the intention. It was yes. tragedy. He builds her up to knock her down. I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with the nature of her depart- departing because it was. Oh, well, this is where you're creepy. doing exactly what Simon was doing last week. But it's a tragedy. Week. I mean, it's just a. No, no, no. You're doing, story you're doing exactly what Simon did last week, which is assuming that what I'm saying is a criticism. Right. You say that Russell T. I'm not describing. Yes, and that's not a mm. criticism because okay. that's a perfectly acceptable way yeah. to write drama. It's a choice. Yeah. I'm it's just saying yeah. it's a choice. He has made a deliberate choice. Yeah. Whereas what Simon was arguing was, don't the people in soap operas make the same deliberate choice? And I'm saying no, because when you engage a character in a soap opera, you don't engage that character to have a tragic ending. You'd, you'd probably be better, rather than comparing it with Russell T. Davis' work on soap operas, Russell well, it wasn't my comparison, it was like Simon's. Cuc- cucumber. I know, I was, I'm arguing with Simon now. <laughs> but Simon's not here. But you've called me Simon. Okay. But Simon's not here, so I'm arguing with Simon. I'm saying that Simon's probably wrong to compare Doctor Who to a soap opera at this stage. But something like Cucumber has the same, has the same tragic arc mm. to it. But yes. my, my, my other point was was broadly, more broadly, because I was getting more broadly into the companion departures to try and get it round to what well, I think Well, you always know is. when you start with a companion that that companion's going to leave. Yeah, and it's generally going to be a sad, 
a sad ending. But it has to be sad. Yeah. Because it's probably in the one way or another. You have to keep them apart. And this, yet, is, this is the challenge. Uh, they're trying to find the ways of keeping the companion apart from the Doctor permanently because it has to be permanent-ish. And they, they unless have, it's Martha uh, and the Doctor yeah, doesn't they're, they're, care. They're just, well, this is it. So it's really <clears> weird. The, the Martha if the Doctor cares about the really companion good. and the companion cares about the yeah. Doctor, the only way for the companion to leave the series is if something tears them apart yeah. in a way that's yeah. irrevocable. And they're going to run out of those... They've had like a different universe. They've had one person losing their memory, the other person losing their memory. <clears throat> You've had death. You've had so. <laughs> you're and going the brilliant to thing is, Stephen right Moffat's found a way of doing it. Russell T Davies did it four times, three times, not yeah. four times, three times, and twice it ends up in tragedy, yeah. and once it ends up in a character yeah. finding herself and making yeah. a deliberate choice to walk away, yeah. which is the best of the three endings, really, yeah. from a certain perspective. Although yeah. the other two are more powerful and back a much weightier dramatic punch. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen Moffat's only done it twice, but he's found a way on both occasions of doing it in a way that actually makes it seem like a positive thing for everybody rather than a negative well, thing for everybody. Well, he balances it. It's a tragedy and a... <clears throat> and a... Not a comedy. But but he gives, a he gives both the companions agency in leaving, even though yeah. they've both left for reasons that are outside of their control. Yeah. Yeah. And that is quite an astonishing trick to pull yeah. off yeah. because, you know, if you, if you write drama or you understand drama, to have something be out of your control but also to have agency over it, mm. sounds like it's impossible. It's, mm. it's much better than the, the classic series where they have to cobble together a companion exit almost in the last episode. It can, yeah. it can feel a bit rushed sometimes. Well, the Leela exit. I mean, the yes. Romana exits was the str- a strong one, I think. Romana exit was a strong one. <laughs> it was gay. Yeah, I think so. She actually decided to, to she, be a sort of yes. justice warrior. But, it, but it, it was very clumsily done. Oh, yeah. But. I always thought Joe Grant's exit in, is it Green Death? Yeah. Was, was actually nice because it, you know, uh, meeting the, uh, the the scientist, eco-scientist guy, I can't remember his name. The, the Cliff. Clifford. Clifford, Clifford James. Was, was nicely kind of um, spaced throughout the episodes in their meeting. Yeah. And so obviously she fell in love with him, I mean, Jake, basically. Jake, sorry. Oh, I was just saying. And so obviously there was, I think the best you can hope for with a departure between companion and doctor, because obviously if it's worked, there's an incredibly strong bond between the two. So when you break that in any way, the, the best that you can um, kind of hope for is, is bittersweet because one character, I mean, Joe Grant was was happy to go off to the Amazon with, with Clifford. And that's not well, a euphemism. No. <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but, but, but obviously um, the third Doctor was, you know, the, the good thing about Joe Grant is that they <laughs> foreshadow it. But also, but also, Clifford Jones is a version of the Doctor, so she ends yeah, up. It's a, bit, it's a bit like Rose ending up with the <clears throat> handy Doctor, yes. and they foreshadow <laughs> Joe, with somebody Joe who ended isn't up with a more suitable Doctor, which didn't look like it was a sort of a Jimmy Savile situation. She actually ended up with mm. somebody more age appropriate. For but them. they foreshadow it with somebody who's not appropriate, but with the door wide enough open at the end of Planet of the Daleks, obviously yeah. with Latab. Well, but the doors... But Joe Grant's constantly having romance. You you well, put a you put twice. a baby young man. Well, um, <laughs> the only other time, Curse of Peladon, Planet of the Daleks, and also the unit. I mean, she was having a sort of. They brought in Mike Yates. Potentially. Yeah, but they didn't do it, did they? No, because Richard Franklin wasn't 
appropriate appropriate for that sort of yeah well that's <clears> it <throat> they they cast him no they they wrote the character with the idea that that would yeah. happen and then when they cast it they realized it wasn't going to so it doesn't happen on screen so on screen she only three times gets romances potentially wasn't there, romances. Bit, wasn't there a bit in cause of axos with the uh, the american I don't think Don't so. I haven't seen it for a long, no, long time. No, I'm pretty sure not. Okay. I mean, even if there are other minor things, my point is that the Curse of Paladon one is obviously irrelevant. That's like an accidental foreshadowing. Yeah. But the one at the end of Planet of the Daleks is close enough to Green Death that it is obviously a deliberate uh, thing on Barry Letts' behalf, knowing what's going to happen in the Green Death, because he's writing it himself while they're making Planet of the Daleks. He adds this bit in at the end of Planet of the Daleks to deliberately foreshadow the fact that Joe Grant will fall in love and leave. Mm. Which is very rare in the classic series, that's why I brought it up. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Shall we uh, maybe get onto a subject now? Oh. <laughs> well, we have been talking about companions, so... Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> I don't think we've gone over too much of the actual ground that I wanted to bring up when we actually get to the subject which I suppose we are doing now. And tonight's subject is the story of Clara, right? Okay. But from a particular perspective, because obviously we on this podcast, and obviously actually the three of us, given the podcast that we've done, have talked a lot about Clara already, Mm. and everybody's talked a lot about Clara already. And when you do a podcast on a companion, Generally speaking, you just go through the stories and talk about what happens to the companion and, you know, try and, depending on who it is, try and follow some kind of character trajectory. But that's not really what I wanted to do with this podcast. This podcast isn't about following Clara's trajectory. It's about me throwing out an idea and then the three of us going through not all of the stories but particular moments and trying to work out whether that idea is valid. <clears throat> okay. So, I guess I should say the idea. Ideas, and so. then we should... Well, I don't think it's... I don't think it's particularly uh, an original idea, but I don't think I've heard anybody else talking or writing about it. So, I think it's worth addressing. Because, Well, in order to say what the idea is, I think you have to kind of fill in some of the background history of what was happening on the production. Because I think this idea arose out of circumstance. You could say well, you could say what the idea is. No, no, I think you have to fill idea. in the background to okay. show where the idea happens okay. and then say what the idea is. Okay, well, in a certain way... Right, okay, let's... Okay, I'll go back to the start. Stephen Moffat comes in with the original plan of doing a series a year like Russell T. Davis did. And then uh, something happens that I can't go into that causes that not to be the case. And, uh, you know, people are always saying, oh, the reason Stephen Moffat can't do as many series of Doctor Who as Russell T. Davis did is because of Sherlock. That's not the case. Something else happened that we can't talk about that caused uh, Doctor Who to get, you know, downsized in 2012 you know the same way as it's because Chris Chibnall got um, asked by ITV to do a third series of Broadchurch 
then we're not getting any Doctor Who next year. It's not because of Sherlock. It's because of the circumstances that have been imposed upon the production. Or something else happened back before the anniversary that caused, you know, that third series of Stephen Moffat's to get split across two years instead of all being in 2012. I think, and this is conjecture, I think if Series 7 hadn't been split into 2013, that Amy and Rory would probably have been there for the whole series. They would have just recorded a series as normal and left at the end of it. And that series would have gone out in the autumn of 2012. Because I think that in although Series 6 was affected by this thing causing the split, this thing had already happened so that they knew the split was going to happen. So they wrote the split around the new production regime knowing that they weren't going to be finished as early. And so they used that as a trigger to move into autumn broadcasts. But because this thing had more of a knock-on effect than they were expecting, that autumn broadcast in 2012 got split into a spring broadcast in 2013. So already the plan had gone completely tits up. But my conjecture is, if Amy and Rory had stayed on to the end of Series 7 in the autumn of 2012, then in 2013, you would have had a full series broadcasting in the autumn and finishing on the anniversary. And that would have been the story of Clara, and she would have left at the end of it. She would have been a one-series companion. And here's where my conjecture becomes the idea. I think Stephen Moffat wrote an anniversary companion and that and this is one thing that fans are <clears throat> you know the hardcore of fans have been complaining about mm. how come clara gets to be the most important companion in the history of doctor who how come clara gets to be the one who's been in every doctor's timeline how come clara at the end of series nine gets to be the one who goes off in a tardis of her own and all these other things mm. i think Series 8, as it would have been then in 2013, would have broadcast in the autumn with an episode along the lines of Name of the Doctor broadcasting one week before the anniversary and then you get the anniversary special as the finale to the series. So going back through the Doctor's timelines would have happened a week before the 23rd of November, the 16th of November. And then in the 23rd of November episode, you get the multi, the actual multi-Doctor episode. So that the one where you get to see the Doctors in clips is the teaser for the one where you actually get to see past Doctors. Now, I'm not saying this is exactly how I think things would have worked out. But this is what I conceive that the original plan, plan probably was something like. And are, you, and are you saying that Clara would have been just literally in two episodes then? Or? No, no, no. In a series in the right. autumn of 2013, okay. from the start of that series, and so it's, it's, in something akin to Asylum of the Daleks and the Snowmen before, because Stephen Moffat obviously already knew what he was doing with this character. Okay. So she'd have turned up in one episode mm. in 2012, and in the 2012 Christmas special, exactly as she did, but then she'd have had a full run in 13 or maybe 12, in the autumn of 2013, and would have left. So actually, it's not that 
far off from what we what we actually have. No, exactly. So we can throw it. I mean, mm. I don't. That's why I you're, think your conjecturing is very labyrinthine, and I don't know what the event is that you're. We're not allowed to talk about because I've, I don't know what it is. But presumably, we can talk about what's actually there in the same in the same way. So yeah, I think that Clara. Yeah, Clara it's is very up, close. Clara yeah. set up as an anniversary companion. The companion that's intended to be in the anniversary. Definitely. And and not afterwards is kind of my conjecture. Possibly, I think afterwards. Afterwards, she's retooled as the companion who's going to bridge the regeneration. Well, this is, yeah, so, using what's gone before. So she's cast. She's cast as the ultimate companion because they know that she's going to be in the anniversary special, <clears throat> and then they use. And that, they know, they but they also status. know. That she's going to be in the name of the Doctor, which is yeah. the crucial bit. Yeah. The, the name of the Doctor is more crucial than the anniversary special. Yeah. yeah. Because that's well, everything's been leading up to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The name of the Doctor is the conclusion to Clara, plan A. Yeah. And then she's in one more episode yeah. and then she leaves. Or even maybe she leaves in <clears throat> name of the Doctor and the anniversary special is a companionless episode. Yeah. Which I think makes more sense, actually, mm. if you look at it from the outside. And and the reason why I want to look at Clara from this perspective is this. Everybody's been saying, oh, why do all these important things happen to Clara? And what they're essentially doing when they're asking that question is mistaking the actress for the character. Mm-hmm. They're saying, why is this actress who I, prior to Doctor Who, have no emotional investment in, get to do all these things that somebody like... For example, Elizabeth Sladen should have been doing. <coughs> now, <clears throat> potentially, there never was going to be a Clara. Potentially, who knows, maybe at some point, Stephen Moffat was going to bring Sarah Jane Smith back for a year at the anniversary and have all these things that Clara's done in Series 7 happened to Sarah Jane Smith instead. And the end of Sarah Jane Smith's story could be that she's the companion who goes back into the Doctor's timeline and gets to affect everything that's happened mm. and gets to <clears throat> affect the Doctor leaving Gallifrey in the first place. Because that's one of the crucial points mm. in Name of the Doctor is the scene where we see the Doctor leaving Gallifrey. Mm. Because this is what Clara's been. And since then, of course, we've got, and these are the important points, Listen and Hellbent. Mm. which are the other two things that we need to address further on, as well as some other stuff as well. But my point is, if you forget the actress who's playing the companion and look only at the way that companion is written, she is written to facilitate the nostalgia that comes with the anniversary. (coughs) She's written to facilitate us being able to see that scene where the Doctor leaves Gallifrey and she's written to facilitate that sequence where we get to go into the flashbacks with all the other Doctors. Mm. That's about the companion as a construct as opposed to the actress essaying the companion as a character on screen. It's a bit like, can you remember when um, they were showing the, the Matt Smith Clara episode, the Matt Smith um, <clears throat> Coleman episodes? We were looking at different elements, things like Hyde, and inside the spaceship and we were saying well that's a sort of a, that's a Colin Baker illusion and that's a Sylvester McCoy illusion and so we were starting to tease out there were sort of connections with with doctors it was an anniversary season but but likewise as you're as you're saying with Clara there's a connection with earlier companions it's not just Sarah Jane Smith well so the, you have 
uh, the snowmen, where she's a Victorian, a Victorian girl, connecting her with Victoria. Victoria. You have Asylum of the Daleks, where she's a girl from the future. So with those two episodes, you pretty much got the two female Troughton companions just just there. And then there are bits where she's, I mean, and it carries on after Matt Smith. So she ends up effectively being Romana by the end of her run. So she's, she is the ultimate companion, but it's not just, I think it's the Sarah Jane Smith comparison. I know there's has, a reason I make that, well, which I, if you'll let me butt in just for a second, yeah, is yes. she's named after Elizabeth Sladen. Yeah, the character. No, Clara is Elizabeth Sladen's middle name. Right. There's a Stephen story. Moffat is very deliberately saying here, uh, the Sarah Jane Smith is the most popular companion across the history of Doctor Who. In a poll, you might have Rose being voted the most popular, while Rose is recent in people's minds. Mm. But across the entire history of Doctor Who, Sarah Jane Smith is the one companion who most gets brought up as the ideal paradigm of a companion. And, and she's well known for Sarah Jane, the Sarah Jane adventures at the time. No, I'm not finished. So go on. And what does Sarah Jane Smith do when she's the companion? She starts off in a job that she continues to be in. And at the end of her adventures with the Doctor, she gets dropped off back into a job and then picked up again from her job to start the next adventure. And this happens throughout season 11. And season 12 is one long story arc that all takes place in one trip, at the end of which the Doctor gives her a choice. Do you want me to give you a lift back to your job in London, or are you going to take the train? And she says, oh, I'll come with you. And by coming with him, she's not going off to have other adventures. She's going off back to her job. And season 13 is a series of adventures that take place as the Doctor's trying to get her back to her job. In exactly the same way, as Stephen Moffat writes Clara as a companion who gets picked up from her job at the start of an episode and dropped back to it at the there's, end. There's an even better proof for your theory beyond the middle name. And that's, you remember the, the anniversary trailer the really cool one where it had loads of different fragments of the Doctor's. Yes. It's featured only one, it featured two companions in exactly the same pose, both looking into this crystal ball. And one's and that Sarah was, Jane. One's Sarah Jane and one's Clara. Mm. Looking across and seeing each other as reflection. Yeah, yeah. And Vis- I think visually, they, they look quite similar. They're both, you know... Um, well, this is where I was going to yeah, go. Yeah. He even casts somebody who looks like yeah. Elizabeth Sladen. Absolutely. And very much gives her <clears throat> the Elizabeth Sladen character. Yeah. Very feisty... Um, smart, curious, curiosity. Yeah, that's the. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the things. All the things that really drew Tom Baker's character to. Uh, and on top of that, he gives her a job in Colonel School, which goes back to Ian and Barbara. Yeah, but people, yeah. but but if you think he's doing an Ian and Barbara with Clara, you're mistaking mm. an illusion to something else that's nice from the history of Doctor Who to what he's actually doing. And what he's actually doing is writing Sarah Jane Smith into the anniversary year, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it's, which is interesting, but fairly obvious that they would do that because of the... Because the well, it's because so obvious that I think most Sarah people Jane, seem to have missed Jane it. Adventures. Sarah Jane is probably more than the actual actors who played the Doctors themselves. Sarah Jane is the most concrete connection with the classic series in the new series. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That there is. 
And, and of course, you couldn't have Elizabeth Sladen in it by then because no, of what we all know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, which I, is why I think possibly, you know, I mean, Stephen Moffat must have been thinking about this stuff before he even took over Doctor Who, right? Mm-hmm. I think possibly in Stephen Moffat's mind, back in two thousand and eight, he's thinking, "What if I get Sarah Jane Smith back into the series for a year mm-hmm. and do something really spectacular with her that'll make her live on." as the ultimate companion mm. forevermore. And because that opportunity gets wrested away from him, mm. he says, instead, I will make a surrogate Sarah Jane Smith and do these things with her instead. Possibly. I think Maybe what he was thinking, yeah. Do you think at some stage early on before her, her, uh, her cancer <clears throat> that he was thinking of having both... Um, Liz Sladen and Tom Baker in the anniversary. Do you think he was thinking that far ahead? Well, who knows? Possibly. I think it'd be more interesting to have Elizabeth Sladen playing the the Billy Piper role in the anniversary. That would have been. So you have you have yeah. a solid companion who is in all the episodes. I think bringing yeah, Liz Sladen you... back as a companion. I think there's too much weight of the classic series behind it. I think that. I think it needed. I think it no, needed because this is the companion. anniversary series. Yeah. Don't forget. Yeah. So the whole point have, is the nostalgia. Yeah. But it would be yeah. more interesting to have her not playing Sarah Jane, but playing the the, the moment. Well, yeah, maybe from be, a. It would have yeah. more weight than actually Rose Tyler. <laughs> but it, yeah, but it wouldn't. But it wouldn't work in the same way as. No, no. But I think Clara. I mean. I think Clara did work. I've, I've never, I've never, maybe because I've never well, yes, had a problem with, think Clara with, with the idea of Clara mm. being dropped off into his timeline. I can see exactly what they're doing with that. And yeah. that is, that and is that's facilitating building the way up to the anniversary. But also, uh, very pointedly, facilitating being able to go back and have clips of all the old doctors mm. without having to you know, just spuriously say, here's some clips of the old doctors. Yeah. You actually give it a story reason for happening. Yeah. And this is why I think, you know, Clara is, uh, and people say he's written no character for Clara and their character changes between the three series. I don't think it changes. I think you just, I think she's that way from the start. It's just that in each of the three series, something different is happening to her. So you see different things coming out of her. I think her character changes in much the same way as characters are supposed to change. Yeah, as, as you, if you travel with an effectively an immortal time traveller yeah. who changes his appearance halfway through, your character is going to change. You're going Absolutely. to become stronger. So it's more realistic her character changes. I think it's true. But it develops that, rather I think than it's tr- just. It's true that. But what she's used as changes through the series. So she's used as a companion, as an anniversary preparation. Then she's used as a regeneration bridge. And then she's given this, this caring role in the first Capaldi. And then she's given her own story. Well, that arc in the, the, the story arc in series nine goes back, I think, to the anniversary. Mm-hmm. And this is, and listen is the one that's kind of the odd fish out. But I think, you know, people will, bang on about this thing about um, Jenna Coleman apparently was going to leave at the end of Series 8. And I've said on the podcast before, I don't think that's the case. Because the Series 9 story arc is all... uh, all springs out of stuff that happens in Series 8. It's all seeded, rather. That's the word I'm looking for in Series 8. Everything that happens in Series 9 comes out of stuff that's already being seeded in Series 8. So we've, I don't... we've had an argument about that, I think, on the, on the, the few podcasts ago. No, yeah, we were talking about the Doctor. Yeah, but our disagreement was you saw you saw Series 9 as being the Doctor's story. I saw Series 9 
as being Clara's story. No, was it the that's opposite not... way, was it the other way around? Yeah, no, it wasn't either of those ways around. Is it not? No. What were we talking about? Oh God, now we're going to lose a train of thought. <laughs> okay, we'll get, carry on with what you were saying. I can't remember, I've lost it already. <laughs> All right, series Hugh, Hugh nine. great. <laughs> <laughs> series 9 is built on the stuff that's already seeded in Series 8. So while Jenna Coleman's contract may have been up, and if she had decided to leave, Stephen Moffat would have had to have knocked on the head something that I think he'd already planned. I think he'd already planned Series 9 in his head before Series 8 went out. Mm. And so, and thus, he's seeding the stuff in Series 8 that he'll use in Series 9. And if Jenna Coleman leaves, okay, you don't even notice that those seeds yeah. are there because they don't develop into anything. Mm, yeah. But But I think he planned around having Jenna Coleman in Series 9 from the start of Series 8, hence him seeding that stuff. And so I think by the end of Series 9, what you get is the payoff on the accident of Jenna Coleman not leaving in the name of the Doctor. Because the name of the Doctor, she's only done eight episodes. I think, going back to what I was saying before, if there'd have been a full series in 2012 with Amy and Rory, then you'd have had a full series in 2013 with Clara, and I think that would have been enough to say, right, that's Clara's story, and have a new companion from... Series 8, as it turns out, from 2014. So I think she would have been a one-series companion. But because it was only eight episodes, I think they thought, we can't do that, it's stupid, eight episodes. That's not really any kind of a story at all. And kept her on. So doing a leave for a moment and completely derailing the thought with a completely different subject, do you think if you project this into the next Moffat series, do you think he's going to have a one-series companion? Yes. But for completely different reasons. Right. Obviously not to celebrate the anniversary always, and facilitate the anniversary stuff. I was always thinking that he was going to have a more than one series companion because then you get the companion bridging the two showrooms. I don't then you have a stable element between the two the well, two. We didn't have it last time. No, I know. And I don't think we'll have it this time. And I'll tell you briefly for why, because I don't think that's how television works these days. This kind of television because this is different from regular television. Mm. Say when the West Wing, Aaron Sorkin left after series four, and then came back for series seven. Mm, He was in series seven briefly. Aaron Sorkin? Yeah, he he didn't return. I thought he'd showrun the end, or he just wrote guest episodes. No, he didn't write any more after series four. So after series four, they've spent series five trying to copy what Aaron Sorkin had done. Yeah, yeah. And then they just went for series six and seven. They just went down their own route. But anyway, my point being, when Aaron Sorkin leaves (laughs) the West Wing, you don't get a complete change of cast. No. But in Doctor Who, when you get a new showrunner, that showrunner gets a clean slate. The same way Stephen Moffat did. I think Stephen Moffat will leave Chris Chibnall a clean slate. Okay. So you'll get the companion. I'll tell you what will happen in my prediction is that you get 12 episodes in the spring of 2017 at the end of which the companion leaves leaving the doctor by himself to regenerate in the christmas special yeah probably that's yeah. that's the yeah, way i imagine yeah. Yeah. a completely clean slot yeah so chris yeah. chibnall doesn't have to come in and say right here i am picking up somebody else's yeah. unfinished business okay. yeah. but i can start with my own business yeah. and tell my own story mm-hmm. Because that's how Doctor Who works these days. The showrunner tells a story. And you don't tell a story with somebody else's characters. 
Anyway, going back to it. So I think when you get to name of the Doctor and Clara's not left in name of the Doctor because all of a sudden name of the Doctor's not the episode immediately before the anniversary special anymore. <laughs> so you get Clara in the anniversary special and then you get her in the time of the Doctor and then she stays on for two more series. <laughs> At which point, the end of name of the Doctor, I think Stephen Moffat's already thinking to himself, right, here we have a companion that I've deliberately written because now she's spanning the anniversary instead of just leading into it. <coughs> Here I have, in name of the Doctor, Clara going back to the Doctor on Gallifrey, leaving Gallifrey for the first time in a TARDIS that doesn't work, that's broken on the outside with a chameleon circuit that won't change when he gets to London into anything other than a police box. And that is... Nice, shiny, white console on the inside. I think he's already thinking then, and in two years' time, this is how Clara's going to leave. And he starts telling that story of how Clara turns into the Doctor, because what he's kind of saddled with here is not a normal companion. You can't tell a normal story for somebody who you've deliberately introduced as the way to facilitate mm. the anniversary celebrations. And by anniversary celebrations, I'm talking about those clips in the name of the Doctor. Well, she, yeah, she's not a normal companion. She has been literally seeded through virtually every point in, in the Doctor's timeline. Exactly. To, uh, to save him. Um, so, you know, fundamentally, she is not a regular companion. They've been bonded, effectively retconned, Back from the moment he decided to leave I was always, Gallifrey. I was always a bit unclear about what what happened at the end of end of the name of the Doctor, whether he dragged out one iteration of Clara. Does, the original. Does, does Clara but so does Clara No the others have all gone. So so Clara so Clara in Day of the Doctor, does she remember her interaction with all of his previous incarnations? No, because they're all different people. She knows right? John Hurt though. She recognises John Hurt from that weird nether space. Yeah, because she meets him in that weird nether space. Yeah. That weird nether space is, for want of a better way of putting it, the gateway. So limbo. Yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah. um, you know, in the classic series in Doctor Who, there's always this thing about because the TARDIS sets in one place yeah. and the other sets are in another place, you've got this dark area right. in the TARDIS doorway. For want of another explanation, that nether space... Between worlds. Is, yeah, is like that dark space in the Dada's doorway. Mm -hmm. And essentially, he just goes in. Because she, what she does when she gets there is she doesn't go down the timelines herself. Mm. She sends off, and Erin, this is not something mm. that she physically does by choice. Mm. But she, her, she stands in the entrance, and from her, clones are taken mm. off down the timelines. Mm. But that still leaves her in the entrance. Yeah. Well, so he only gets to go back to the entrance to pick her up, essentially. Mm -hmm. And because she sees John Hurt there, yeah. then obviously she'd remember him because she's still the original one coming yeah. back out. And she sees the other, the other doctors. Mm. Yeah. For a brief, brief, briefly. Of the other Not as much as she sees him, no. which is why she no. wouldn't necessarily remember them later on. No. And also, just to go off on a slight tangent, okay. um, the Doctor doesn't get given a new regeneration cycle until the time of the Doctor. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't happen until after the events of Name of the Doctor. Yeah. And Name of the Doctor is about the Doctor's grave, right? Yeah. And actually, this is explained when we get to see um, what happens in, well, Heaven Sent, basically. 
You know, in Name of the Doctor, it's like going to the Doctor's grave. Oh, well, there's no body there. Mm-hmm. There's just the timelines of the Doctor, mm-hmm. which seems like a strange idea. But you put it together with what happens in Heaven Sent, with what a confession dial is supposed to be, mm-hmm. is that a Time Lord is supposed to be teleported into their own confession dial so that the confession dial can absorb their memories mm-hmm. and those memories can be uploaded to the Matrix. Mm-hmm. At which point you've got a tiny, tiny microcosmic dead Time Lord body mm-hmm. in a confession dial, which then, once the uploading's been done, gets thrown away. Mm-hmm. So a Time Lord ends without... A body. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Although the TARDIS is there. <coughs> the TARDIS is explicitly there. <coughs> Well, the TARDIS is there, but that's that's so the, separate the, the from his body. TARDIS. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that that's that's mm. um, symbolic. Yeah. For the series, mm. for the Doctor with, that we've known across fifty years, that's yeah. kind of a symbolism. Yeah. But uh, what was my tangent? Oh, so because time of the Doctor doesn't happen till afterwards. At the time of name of the Doctor. Clara only goes back into the timelines of the Doctors who exist at that point. Yes. So yes. she doesn't go forward into the new regeneration cycle because that doesn't exist at that point. Yeah. Which I think is worth pointing out yeah. because, you know, you occasionally see somebody asking on Gallifrey Base or wherever, why haven't we seen reiterations of Clara, you know, turning up? And another thing that people say is, now that they're knobs, aren't they? Well, but also at the end of Face the Raven, one of the predictions as to how Clara was turning up in a diner in episode 12, which mm. people knew from the cover of Doctor Who magazine but hadn't seen yet, was oh, it'll be another iteration of Clara. And of course, no, it can't be because she's not in the 12 Doctor's timelines. Yeah. yeah. So that's just knocking the head of the nail yeah. on that one. For, yes. So on the, I seem to have been talking an awful lot now. <laughs> but on the, so on the subject of listen, okay, what Stephen Moffat likes to do is, and and we discussed this when I said he'd been seeding things, and sometimes you don't notice the seeds until they, and you said it as well, Matt. So you don't notice the seeds necessarily until they fruit because mm. you don't know specifically which seeds to look out for, yeah. and by the same token. You, the way Stephen Moffat works is, and I said this, didn't I? He likes to give you an example of something before he'll give you that thing elsewhere, mm. which isn't necessarily a seed. It's more of a foreshadowing. Yeah. Like he does in a most obvious way with the Zygons foreshadowing the way Day of the Doctor will end mm. by them having all the Doctors there using the power that they've... My, my view of Moffat, is, I think it's slightly different from, from yours. He tries things out. I th- well, I think he, he, I think his, his main strength isn't the fact that he plans everything or that he's got a master plan. I think his, his main strength is he has plans A, plan B, plan C's, and he puts things in for texture, and then he knows how to connect that, like most Doctor Who fans do. He's the yeah. master retconning, but he retcon- retcons his, himself. So well, I think he always he puts, knows where he's going. So he puts the 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 weird barn in in uh, in Day of, the Day of the Doctor, and then he thinks, "Oh, that's a really good location. thing I can use." In Not listen. necessarily planning listen already, but then maybe he thinks this would be good enough <laughs> to bring back. I know. And then he brings it back, and he. I think what he does in listen is he knows already what hell bent is going to be. In fact, he even says in an interview at the time of Listen, I know already what Hellbent is going to be. 
I think he uses the barn in Listen. This is where I was going. Yeah. He's not just foreshadowing himself, but he's building a bridge for himself. Yeah. So that Listen... Because Listen looks for all the world like a completely standalone story. But I think what he does with Listen is he says, in name of the Doctor, you've got a companion who goes back to the very beginning and all points in between. Mm. And in Listen, and so, and, but this is a companion whose story will end with her becoming the Doctor and stealing that TARDIS herself, mm. which is a mirror of what mm. happens at the start of name of the Doctor where she tells the first Doctor to take that TARDIS. Mm -hmm. So I think what he does in Listen is he says, right, I've been in point A, Day of the Doctor, and I'm going to point B, Hellbent. And in that way that I did with the Zygons in Day of the Doctor, where I used what they were doing to foreshadow what happens at the end of there, Mm -hmm. he says, what I'm going to do with this episode that looks for all the world like a standalone episode is actually take a strand from point A that is going to be making a reappearance in point B and actually tie that strand together in a knot that's so tight that when it happens in point B, it's already foreshadowed by this story that looks like a sort of mini-sequel to point A. It, I mean, it, it works It works very well because um, it feels like another moment from uh, Name of the Doctor whereby Clara goes back and you know, reassures the, the, the boy, the young boy doctor, that, you know, fear makes companions of, of us all and, and kind of reassures him so that the the older doctor will be okay. And it seems like another moment when she's kind of saving him. But she's also, crucially, teaching herself that mm. so that two years later or a year and a half later, she can go off and do that herself. Mm. I, I still think, so I'm, I'm still not convinced that he's... He's set it all in stone. I'm, I think the real genius of him, of his writing, is it looks like it's all set in stone. But actually, I think he writes more fluidly than that. I think he, no, he writes I... and he adjusts towards <laughs> towards changing casts. And no, changing. I... So when, when think... Eccleston isn't going to be in the anniversary, I, th- I think he's already sort of worked out a way before he's found that news out, so he knows how to do well, it. Yeah, there's a fluidity in that respect. And, and in the like... respect of listen, there's a fluidity in that that episode didn't need to exist, and he said to himself, okay, I'll write that episode. Yeah. So it doesn't need to be there. I think it works, it works in exactly the way that Lost, the series Lost, doesn't work, mm. where Lost put, throws in weird elements and ties itself in knots mm. and, and it Scrap doesn't return to trying to make itself consistent but yeah. doesn't, doesn't yeah. always work mm-hmm. I mean ultimately there's only one person who knows whether he's planned literally every step yeah. um, oh, I don't think he plans you know, every step um, or, or, whether, or, or whether he he's creating a, a universe that allows connections to be made yeah. a little bit down the line but still feel very planned out. Well, I think No, I think the thing is, he's got a point A and a point B and everything in between is in flux. And he says to himself, knowing where point B is going to be, and he did because he said so in the interview. Well, that's, it's, it's debatable when he said he knows how it's going to end. There's a degree of sort of ambiguity about that. Well, only you could, if you, you could know, you uh, might not know exactly where it's going to end, but he knows maybe a scene that's going to be in the end. He no, knows that it's going to take, so. take place on Gallifrey. Well, I mean, I think this is we're arguing about <laughs> what why Moffat is what makes Moffat brilliant. 
No, and you're talking, but I'm talking and I, and I think about. This is his general, his no, I'm not talking about what makes Moffat brilliant. Writing. I'm talking about a writer and how a writer's mind works. If you, he knows what the end point is going to be, everything else is in flux, which is allow, which is what allows him to take those flux points and make them relevant to the end point. And the, but what I'm talking about specifically here is him writing a companion for the anniversary. And then saying, okay, now I've got this companion after the anniversary. I have to do something with this companion that's relevant to what she was in the anniversary, which is why her story ends up with her going off and being the Doctor. I think as soon as you get to Day of the Doctor and Jenna Coleman's name is still on the paperwork, Stephen Moffat's thinking ahead and thinking, I can't have her married off. I can't have her dying off. You know, without something else, you know, this other thing. He's saying at this point, I can't have her leave in the way any other companion leaves because the way she leaves has to be relevant to the way she came in. Because she's not like any other companion. I think what's quite interesting... The genius, actually, just very briefly, Mm. is that he takes a construct and writes her as a human being. Mm. No, I I was just going to say what I think is really interesting is that, you know now that we've seen her complete arc and we know that certainly towards the end of her tenure there's there's this idea that she is almost effectively a doctor in her own right um but you see you see those seeds right at the very beginning so in asylum of the daleks you're seeing um her being the doctor oswin has been this incredibly sharp smart person in fact there's a line in it because i was watching it the other day um she says something like, um, um, is there a word for someone who's staggeringly clever, um, but modest and just a little bit sexy? And, and the doctor says, yes, doctor. Well, um, there you go. And it's, it's been set up right from, from the beginning that, um, that here is this person who is, is, is very smart, very witty, very, very observant. There's lots of moments when... Um, you know, a crucial piece of the puzzle is only observed by Clara, and and it's and it's her that um, you know. So, for instance, I was watching um, Crimson Horror um, earlier today, and it was um, she's the one who notices that there's this great big chimney in Sweetville, um, but there's no smoke coming out of it. So it's it's it, you know she she has that level of observation that the Doctor um, often has. And obviously that's been written onto her character to show that she has those those powers. So I think actually the interesting thing is that um, with Oswin and then later on Clara as the barmaid stroke governess, mm. they're two characters that um, are, you know, very smart, but particularly Clara, the, the barmaid governess. She is someone who's a little bit out of her time. She's playing someone... Um, She's pretending to be someone. She is some, or she is um, not who she seems. So really, she's the the sort of the um, the the kind of well, if you want to, but, but she's, she's pretending as much to be a, a performer as the doctor is. So the, do- exactly. the doctor is the great. Well, she's yes, like uh, she. If you want to extend the metaphor a little bit, she's living two lives in the same way as somebody who's a highborn Gallifreyan mm. but mucking in with the humans is living two exactly. lives. I I kind of agree with you. <laughs> but I'm not Matt's sure. job is to disagree. No, no, no. Great yeah, job. yeah, I'm doing. But, but I think I don't. I don't think this is necessarily 
just part of the arc of the Clara becoming like the Doctor because I think any modern day companion has to hold their own with the Doctor. So if you look at Rose in the episode Rose, she's the one exactly like in the Crimson Horror, she's the one that notices the London Eye Mm. behind the Doctor and that's exactly the same story beat. And so in in the modern in the modern series, the companion can't be patronised to. They have to be on the same level. Absolutely, Matt. Let me just put you this point forward. Okay. Don't don't put that towards me. (laughs) (laughs) And and pull your trousers back up. In the classic series, you had twenty six years worth of adventures, Mm. and at the end of these adventures, every single one of them, hundred and sixty odd or something. Who saved the day at the end of each of those adventures, generally speaking? Generally, it was the Doctor. Right, and in Name of the Doctor, Clara goes back into every single one of those adventures and saves the day. Yes. He's already made of the Doctor. Yeah. And of course, when the actress actually left the series, that's how she was going to end up. Yes, but it's the same. So, but it's the same with. So, but the same with Rose. Rose becomes at the end of the first series an immortal, a, an immortal. God. Yes, but she doesn't save the day in every Doctor Who story. No, no. But Clara does. No, and Clara I becomes. I can, I can the see doctor. that in, in the name of the Doctor, there's an indication of that. But I'm su- I'm suggesting that maybe not from from day one. And it's yeah, not a because... Thing. I think this is more... You're right. Stephen Moffat writes there's, Clara's there's, very first scene, knowing exactly I think what her last scene in Name of the Doctor I is going to be. I think there's two things happening. There's one which is the role of the modern-day companion, which has to be on the same level as the Doctor. <clears throat> and then there's Clara slowly turning into a Doctor-like figure. I think, but that's, she but that's, I think that's two separate things. And they could be into that. I mean, arguably, they are interlinked. But this is the way I see it. Mm. I, I see all modern-day companions. You can't have a modern-day modern companion companions... who, who isn't in some way, either emotionally or... They can never be intellectually on the same level as the Doctor, but they can be slightly more... Yes, but I'm talking about on a technical level. In what way? Clara's inserted into the entire history of Doctor Who and becomes the Doctor. Yeah, well, in the name of the Doctor. Clara's inserted into the history of Doctor Who and becomes the ultimate companion who saves the Doctor. Yeah, no, she saves the day in each of those stories. She tells the Doctor what to do. That's explicitly so in the dialogue. definition, if being the Doctor is saving the day and Clara has retroactively been saved doing the day that, does by that telling the Doctor. Her, does that make her the Doctor? Doctor like, certainly. Oh, no, but what I'm saying is this is at this point. The doc- when Stephen mm. Moffat's writing The Name of the Doctor, mm. no, when Stephen Moffat's writing The Bells of St. John and The Snowmen and Asylum of the Daleks, he knows what's going to happen in The Name of the Doctor. Mm. Otherwise, you don't write that weird arc where she turns up in three separate places mm. in three different bodies. Mm. He writes all those stories knowing how Name of the Doctor's going to end. And at the end of The Name of the Doctor, Clara effectively, in a technical sense, in terms of what she does in the series becomes the Doctor. I don't think I don't think so. I think at that stage in Name of the Doctor <laughs> yeah, I'm just... at, at that stage in Name of the Doctor, at the end of name, the Name of the Doctor, the Clara is rescued by the Doctor. So there's yeah. it concludes with a distinction between the Doctor and Clara. And no, you're missing the point. The point I'm making is that Clara is inserted into the entire history of the programme yeah. to do what the Doctor's role is. In yeah. those stories, 
Yes, but I don't think that comes across in that episode. <clears throat> yeah, I think it in does. the episode, it's you explicit don't see, in the episode. You don't see her in the doctors. In the, when you actually see her interacting with past doctors, she's not actually solving anything. She's trying to communicate with the doctor. Well, that's you see because, her bang on the thing. Uh, yeah, but how? And then you, you see her falling through the time mm. vortex, and then you see her in the nether space watching the doctors move past, and then you see her with the doctor drawing her out. This isn't, this yeah, isn't, how, she's, not, she's not being framed in that story right, as because a doctor-like figure. The technical limitations of the no, episodes no, 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 are no, such think, that they can't insert her into the climax of all no, the stories. No, but she doesn't do anything doctor-like when I she think, enters the time. Yeah, the I know, time. I, I, she I know. tells the doctor how to solve no, the story. No, she's it's not. in the dialogue. She's trying to tell the doctor. She can't communicate with the doctor. Right, but... That's the point. Yeah, she's, okay, she enters you're splitting hairs again. No, no, no. She enters the timeline Shh. to stop the great intelligence. Don't Pro- you splitting probably, hairs again? Probably the best, probably the best example, I, I would have to agree with Matt, in that a lot of those sequences, because um, I have just literally watched this today, um, a lot of the sequences are, are where there are visual encounters between Clara and various versions of the Doctor. So, for instance, she shouts out to the third Doctor as he's driving in Bessie and mm. he sees her in, in the rearview mirror. Mm. And there's one where, for some reason, it looks like they're in Florida or something, and um, uh, a kind of fur-coated Patrick Trapp runs past. Yes. Um, so the interaction is very minimal there. The most, you... the most, crucial, the most crucial one is when um, uh, the doc, uh, William Hartnell and the granddaughter are about to go into a Type 40 and she tells him, don't go in that one, go in this one. Yes. And then that's obviously yeah. a very crucial but, thing because it, you know, it sets but, him on but a do you think, trajectory. But do you think she's being, she's being, at that stage, framed as a Doctor-like character? I think she's, I, she's well, a companion. I mean, I mean, I mean, no, 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 no. I, I think the you're knowledge... missing the point. Totally missing the no, point. I'm, argue, I'm arguing with the point. No, but you're arguing a different point. Okay. The point is that she is inserted into the series. She's inserted into all those stories, right? Potentially every story there's ever been. Yeah. Who is the only character who has been in all those stories? But if but I'm looking at I'm looking at that particular I'm looking at Name of the Doctor, which is what we're talking about, and how Clara is framed in Name of the Doctor. How Clara is framed in Name of the Doctor is down to the technical capabilities of which scenes they could put her in. No, I don't think so. It's how she's it's how she's framed. I think the narration, I mean, you know, because basically at the beginning she's falling through space mm. and time and, yeah. you know, and basically the, her own narration at the beginning makes it explicit as to what she's supposed to be doing, which is, I'm, my name's Clara Oswald, I was born to save the Doctor. Yes. Um, yeah. So so that's what it's saying. The visually, you could argue that there are some parts of it that don't necessarily give that um, idea, but very much in the same way that, you know, supposedly, you know, um, River Song was born to kill the Doctor, mm. which the general idea, she, she is the exact opposite of that. She, she has literally come along, as she says in her narration, to, to save him, you know, to, yeah. either to warn him, to shout him to, to avoid whatever catastrophe is going to happen, and thereby allowing him to live so that perhaps in all these retconned episodes he then goes on to save the day himself mm. but maybe there's some crucial point but, but the, 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 she... the saving the day thing is not especially relevant that in the name of the doctor clara goes into the doctor's timeline mm. his entire timeline 
She is everywhere in the Doctor's life. Every point, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm assuming, yeah. She is in that episode turned into a surrogate doctor, somebody who's inside the doctor. Mm-hmm. Every bit of the doctor, from the moment he's born well, to I the... Don't, I don't think so. I think, I think she's turned into somebody who's supporting each other. I think she's become the ultimate companion, but not the doctor. No, she's inside his timeline. Yeah, I'm saying... Supporting the doctor. Sa- saving the doctor is just what companions do in the new series. Look at Rose. No, but... No, Rose, but... You forget said, you said, the outside. You said, you said, she's not outside his timeline. Yes. She's inside yeah, it. But you said in the classic series, the Doctor always. This is where I, where I thought you were going. No, you no, you're in not. In the classic series, the Doctor always, always saves the day. And you're saying that by inserting Clara into the classic series episodes and saving the day from she's, inside she's, the Doctor's timeline. I think yeah. When you're saying it's at some fundamental level, they have become bonded. Yes, at a yes. Thank you. At a fundamental level. Clara and the Doctor are bonded throughout the Doctor's history. Yeah. Which makes her a surrogate Doctor. It makes her the ultimate companion. No, because it the companion, the companion and the Doctor are bonded together. This is what the role of the companion is. Isn't no, it? she's inside the Doctor's timeline. Yeah, yes, but supporting the Doctor. This is what. This no, is what stop, the whole point of naming the Doctor. Stop <laughs> thinking of it from the fictional perspective and think of it from the authorial perspective. Okay. Stephen Moffat has put Clara into the Doctor's shoes. Right. And so that's where he puts into, her at the end of Series 9. Into, into the, doc- the Doctor's shoes. Into the Doctor's stories. No, into the Doctor's shoes. Well, cer- certainly Series 8 and Series 9 <laughs> are, are, are building to the idea of Clara, if not being the Doctor, because she, obviously her physiology hasn't changed or anything like that, uh, certainly those two um, series are building to, to the idea of um, Clara operating like the Doctor, having to make those difficult decisions like in uh, Kill the Moon or or being the Doctor because he's stuck inside the TARDIS in Flatline. She's having she's having to do the mm. things that he, he does, make those difficult, yeah. um, challenging I- choices. Um, and, and coming a cropper as she does in Face the Raven when, when she gets it wrong, which sometimes it does. And the way I see it is Clara making those choices and, and becoming more like the Doctor, that starts after Capaldi comes in. So Clara becomes the Doctor's carer. Mm-hmm. And gradually Clara becomes the Doctor's translator, the, do- the way the Doctor, she translates the way the Doctor interacts with humans and she creates the Capaldi Doctor. She shapes the Capaldi Doctor. And in doing so, she becomes more like the Doctor. And I think that's the start of her journey. You don't think think her decision in name of the Doctor to throw herself into his timeline? I think that's the ultimate companion. I think she throws herself into... Yeah, but what you've just said about what she does with Capaldi starts there with Matt Smith at the end of that. Because she makes a decision there to do that. that I think that's just what the modern series companion does. That's what Rose does. That's what Donna does in the end of her series. The modern day companions save the Doctor. This is the point of the modern day companion. Yeah. And so, but, but what's so, your point so, about Capaldi then? Because I think that's the start of the the story arc that ends with Clara becoming like the Doctor, because Capaldi comes in and Capaldi is like an unmolded Doctor. He's a fresh Doctor, a new regeneration cycle who doesn't know. If he's a good man, he doesn't know how to deal with humans. He doesn't know who he is. And Clara is there 
to help him find out how to be the Doctor again. Yeah. By the end of Capaldi's first season, I think he's found out how to be the Doctor. He's decided yeah, he has where a he is. speech in Death and, in Heaven where he says as much. And that's the culmination. That's when Capaldi becomes the Doctor. The next series, series is when it's dealing with Clara's fallout from that role. She spent an entire series helping the Doctor become the Doctor. Then she spends the next series becoming the Doctor herself. Because in helping the Doctor to become the Doctor, she also learns how to become the Doctor. Yes. Exactly. But I, but I, don't, that... I don't connect it. I see Clara's, Clara's character as having two halves. I think there's the pre-Capaldi and then there's the Capaldi. But and I, I think, think the pre-Capaldi pre is the ultimate, way to the ultimate companion. Well, no, you can still see it as a trajectory. <clears throat> Hmm. Pre Capaldi is the ultimate companion. She's then post Capaldi. She she's on the path to becoming the Doctor. Right, but pre Capaldi, she's still written as a human being who's learning all this stuff for herself. Yes, yeah, she's still developing as a as a personality. I just don't. My my beef is quite a minor one. I don't see the idea of her becoming Doctor like. I don't see that as being seeded before Capaldi comes hmm. in. No, I, I don't. I, I see it as being. I don't think it is. That's my entire point. You you suggested that, you suggested in the name of the Doctor she entered the, the timeline and became Doctor like. Yeah, in, that's, that's, from a metaphorical authorial perspective, Stephen Moffat writes this short arc for this character in which, at the end of it, metaphorically she becomes the Doctor, and I'm saying that the two years after that. He says, right, since I've still got the same companion, mm. rather than having a new one as I originally planned, yeah. I will actually write that as a story. Okay. That's why we, that's why we disagree, because I don't think it's about her being the doctor in that story. I think it's still about her being the ultimate companion. No, I absolutely disagree. Okay. She is in the doctor's timeline. Yeah. She's yeah. in the doctor's shoes. She's, she's, she's in every, oh, she's in every doctor's she behaves. She's in every doctor's story. She Matt, as, as just the ultimate one companion. sentence, please. She behaves as the ultimate companion, and at the end of it, metaphorically, she becomes the Doctor by going into his timeline, which is not what happens to the human being, but is the technical authorial thing that Stephen Moffat's done. I've put this companion into the Doctor's shoes. Now let's spend two years actually seeing that happen to the person. Okay. Yeah, I don't agree. I don't think he put her into the Doctor's shoes. I think he put her into the... He made it explicit he was putting her into the Doctor's stories, into his timeline. Yes, into his the Doctor's stories. Is, yeah, that's not into his shoes. That's not the same. That's I'm talking the same about... Story. I'm talking about in the same way as the actor William Hartnell is in, I don't know, The Army Game and uh, Brighton Rock and Doctor Who. Mm. I'm talking about in that sense. He has put Clara into the Doctor's shoes. He has put her into the Doctor's stories. Right. And nobody else is in all those stories but no. the Doctor. I'm saying Stephen Moffat has put Clara where the Doctor is in all of the stories from before she came along. Okay. And I'm okay. saying that having done that, he says to himself, now I've got the actress for another two years, I will actually do that to the character rather okay. than just to the actress. Okay. Yeah, I, th I think there is a, a character, a metaphorical character, who is in all the stories beyond the Doctor, because you have the companion. If you're talking metaphorically, you have a Doctor, you have a companion. The companion, much like the Doctor, 
changes changes okay. actor periodically. In that case, we'll look at it like that and say, well, what I mean, would that's... the ultimate prize for a companion be? To have a TARDIS of her own and to go off and have her own adventures. So he still takes her to this. All I'm saying is that in name of the Doctor, yeah. Stephen Moffat has the character in a particular place mm-hmm. and then spends the next two years... No, in name of the Doctor, Stephen Moffat has his construct in a particular place, which he then spends the next two years taking the character to. Now, whether you see that as being the Doctor or the ultimate companion, at the end of those two years, he has essentially put that character as a person in the same place, able to go anywhere in time and space and save the day. All I'm saying, whether you want to call it the Doctor or the Ultimate Companion, is that something he did metaphorically in the name of the Doctor, he does for real in Hellbent. I, w- I would say that the seeds actually go right back to the beginning. They go back to oh, Asylum, well, yeah. Asylum of the Daleks. I mean, I, I, well, Asylum of the Daleks yeah. is written knowing exactly what's going to happen in the name yeah. of the Doctor. And, and, there are, and there are other things where, yeah, yeah. There are other things where I think he's <laughs> kind of testing. Like, so like in The Snowman, when they're on the roof and he's taken the brolly, and um, he, he tests her as to, you know, why have I brought Brolly up to the roof? Where are we going? Are we trapped? What have you? And, and she figures out that, you know, if she just pulls down the Brolly, she'll get the, uh, the bottom rung of the ladder and they can, they can escape. And it, it's, so I'm interested in what the character the Doctor is doing at that time. You know, is he, is he just testing out the ultimate companion or is he looking for something else? Is, he's, obviously well, in, seen, he's obviously seen something in her that's well, incredibly in smart. And there's another level because the Doctor's not being the Doctor in the Snowmen, so it's up to Clara to be the Doctor mm. in the Snowmen. At that particular moment on the roof, he's, yeah. he's, he's like the Doctor. He's kind of saying, well, I know what my yeah, plan yeah, yeah. is. I've got a plan. Well, you tell me what my plan is. That's the, that's, that's the, the, the pleasure of the Doctor's character. Mm. is that he's a stone-cold genius and can do everything, mm. apart from the times when he can't, mm. or he doesn't notice it, but, or when he's pretending not mm. to, because he's also the best... He's also the character in the series who is the actor. Mm. He's constantly playing somebody else, mm. and he's playing the buffoon, or he's playing the the, <coughs> the conservative Tory kind of... <laughs> Clubable, whatever. Yeah. Or he's playing the bohemian. But, 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 often, but often the doctor likes to be, certainly likes to think that he is the smartest man yeah, in the room, and yeah. often he is. Yeah. So um, he'll, he'll, you know, as, as we know, he'll kind of skip the boring bits and gets a bit where he gets to speak because that's the most yeah. interesting bit. So for him to take time to actually not show everyone, or in this case, Clara, on the roof, that he's got a plan, he's the smartest person to actually say, well, you tell me what the plan is. I yeah, mean, that's, yeah. that's interesting. That's kind of turning something on its head and saying, actually, it's almost like he's kind of grooming her. Well, you get this or thing. grooming her for what? Grooming her to be... The ultimate companion. You get or the doctor. Yeah. You get the sense... Whatever you want to call yes. it. <laughs> you get the sense that he's drawn towards her, that somehow he, he kind of... He, he didn't meet her in the Silent of the Daleks, but somehow he, he knows that there's a connection. He and is, you get that from the Bells of St. John's as well. He is drawn to it. Because he's seen her. Yeah. He's worked and it again, out by yeah. that point. Again, but, there's, but another, in, there's another yeah. line in uh, The Snowman when um, she's finally gone up the, uh, the spiral staircase and um, goes into the TARDIS, I think, for the first time, and he gives her a key. And he says something like, um, I never know why, I only know who. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, you know, so there, there is this, you know, instant kind of, 
um, attraction yeah. and, and, and link to them. And I, want, I wonder if that is, you know, kind of sowing the seeds for not just someone who's going to be the ultimate companion, but something a little bit more. I've, I've said that on first dates as well. It goes down, it goes down really well. Do you give keys over to them? No, not keys. God, no. No, 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 no. But I just say that I'm All right, fine. okay. So I get away with it. I'm, I'm hoping you, these first dates aren't with actual people. That's you, all I can say. I hope they don't listen to the podcast either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Actually, my parents listen to the podcast. My parents, oh, listen, my parents listen to the podcast where I accused them of being deaf and, and talking loudly during the Christmas, uh, the Christmas episode. And then they phoned me up having listened to the podcast and, and criticised me for taking <laughs> It's, it's an argumentative strain in your yeah. family. I, so can I, see. I have to be careful about what I say about my idiot brother. Well, you've just <laughs> <laughs> you just said you've got the my job is to be the one who disagrees. Aside from your mum and dad, did I? Basically, did... I don't. I'm... It's yeah. in the genes. I never. I never. I never disagreed completely. I'm just. It's a different way of looking at things. So. There's one more thing. I'd like to bring up about Clara that's completely irrelevant to everything I've just said. That's more about the character of Clara before we stop. Yeah. And that thing is that... Okay, here's something that came up somewhere on the internet in the last few days. And it, it's not this, but this triggered my thought. And somebody said when Clara, you know, gets killed off, stroke, gets this extra time before her actual death... Somebody said, in Stephen Moffat's writing, how are we supposed to care about Clara because we don't know her family background in the same way as we did with Russell T. Davis? And my response to that was twofold. One, we did get to see her family background yeah. in The Rings of Akaten. Mm. And also, actually, there was a prequel to that series where we got to see her family background as well because we got to meet Clara when she was about 10 or something on the swings, if you mm. remember. Yeah. So, one, it's not completely true to say we don't know what Clara's family background is because Stephen Moffat's written a character who has been born and whose family presumably still live in the Northwest mm. and who's come down to London to train as a teacher and get a job as a teacher. Mm. So her job is 300 miles away from where her parents are. So, of course, we're not going to see them in the same way as we saw Donna's parents who are all living in the same house mm. or Rose's parents are all living in the same house. But the wider point on that is that I think Stephen Moffat has deliberately tried to bridge the new series and the classic series by writing characters, and Amy was the same in a certain respect, although he did it in an entirely different way, where they do have an emotional family background. And we did get to kind of meet Amy's family in the Big Bang, mm. even though they were at the start of the 11th hour, they're wiped out. So we don't get to see them through the rest of series five mm. until the Big Bang reset. Stephen Moffat's written a series where the, the companions have that emotional background that Rose and Martha and Donna had, but where it doesn't impinge upon the drama by needing to turn up on screen. Mm -hmm. So I think he bridges the... He's kind of going for the best of both worlds yeah. by saying you can have an emotional background, but we don't need it rammed down our throats. Yeah. So like the classic series, we don't see the family every week, yeah. but like the new series, that emotional background is there. I mean, with Amy, she kind of takes the family with her in the form of Rory. 
Mm. So Rory is the character. Yeah, yeah. Rory travels with the Doctor as well. So they're they're kind of a package. And in with the Doctor as series a child stroke parent. And in series yeah, and in series A, Stephen Moffat even counterpoints that by bringing in Danny Pink to be a potential mm-hmm. Rory yeah. and saying, right, I've done Rory, mm-hmm. so now let's do it another way where it all goes wrong instead mm-hmm. of all goes right. And that is that is her grounding. So when she's not travelling with um, the Doctor, mm-hmm. um, there are the scenes when she's with, with Danny. So um, that effectively is her sort of family unit. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. do get to see in Time of the Doctor, actually, mm-hmm. her with... Christmas I forget if it's... Her grandmother. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's not as if it's entirely absent. Yeah. It's just not present every single week in the same way that perhaps Rose's yeah. character with her mum was. It's like, yeah, every time a story was set in the modern mm. day, when Rose was the companion, the yeah, had to have Jackie and her <laughs> Mickey. Yeah. And with Martha, he went on further mm. by having her phoning her up all the time. <laughs> Which is another connection with Sarah Jane as well, because with Sarah Jane, she has a family, but you never see the family. No, you but just hear about But you're aware constantly of her family because she's modelling herself on her aunt. Um, and with Clara, yeah. And with Clara, you get to see them those two times, mm. and that's the background for the yeah. character. Mm. And then you don't need to have her constantly referencing yeah. them because you've seen it. Mm. Yeah. It's great. Solving problems I never thought were problems in the first place. Well, exactly. I, I wasn't even aware. Well, I think this is what... I think this is what... When Russell T. Davis brought Doctor Who back in the 21st century, he said, you can't do it the way it was because there are certain things that the classic series kind of brushed under the carpet that you need to address now. And I think... So what Russell T. Davis did was did a series where you addressed all those things. I think what Stephen Moffat's done is moved it on by saying, right, you can address all those things without all those things needing to be issues within mm. the series. Mm. So it's like, address it and move on. Mm. And I think there's a wider point that with, you know, Clara's character, there is this tension, certainly in um, series eight, between a home life and, you know, a kind of blossoming love affair with Danny Pink and wanting to be grounded on earth but her need to go off and have these amazing adventures so there's this kind of tug of war going on so So, Danny Pink kind of becomes a surrogate in that series for what Jackie and Mickey were you know during series Mm. one or two the the thing that's at home that keeps you tied Danny Pink in in a sense becomes a doctor like figure no the opposite (laughs) no no but (laughs) but you're you're (laughs) suggesting there's sort of two poles drawing Clara between them I think I think for for uh, for Clara there are two very strong pulls in her yeah, life. Yeah. Um, just like you know, for some people it's you know the pull between work and family, but mm. with Clara it's 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 literally the pull between um, uh, her love for for Danny Ping, mm. but her love for the Doctor in a in a kind of a, yeah. a adventure way, you know. Yes, Danny Ping becomes the opposite in the, in the because the Doctor represents the classic series where you go off and out of adventures, yeah. and mm. Danny Pink represents the new series where you need an emotional grounding. Mm. So it becomes the opposite. The Doctor's the fantasy, Danny Pink's the reality. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and 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 the tension, the drama comes from the fact that really there's supposed to be a choice here, but but Clara can't make it. Mm. You know, she equally loves 
both in a way she's addicted absolutely in a way that dichotomy between those two characters is almost like Stephen Moffat doing Love and Monsters across an entire series where you look at how Doctor Who works through Mm. the story you're actually telling on screen which is you know something that I've said many times on Mm. the podcast I think Stephen Moffat just does Mm. I think it's just part of his armory do you think we'll ever see um, uh, companions effectively living on the TARDIS as we saw, I guess, with, say, Leela, for instance. As of the next one. Where where there's a life just on the TARDIS and there is no time... Oh, I see what you mean, without the TARDIS. Earth or family or anything Well, I think you can now. I think at the end of Russell T. Davis's era, you couldn't have done it then. Mm. But I think what Stephen Moffat's done by saying, these are the ties, now we'll move on. I think he's opened the door for that possibility again. Mm. I think, I don't think you could, and you never would in the classic series anyway, have had a companion come aboard, well, maybe Dodo Chaplet, without knowing anything about where they came no, from. No, mm. it has to be a rounded character. <clears throat> so you'd probably have an opening episode where maybe you met the parents, or at least heard about them. Mm. But I think now Stephen Moffat's kind of opened the door. Mm. What Stephen Moffat's done, <clears throat> you know, for all that he's the one who's had opened the door towards a female doctor... He's also opened the door towards the series being being able to go back and be the classic series again mm. by saying these things that were really relevant under Russell T. Davis haven't lost their relevancy, but they've lost the necessity to be seen on screen. Mm. So you can have a... As long as you make sure the character who's travelling tar, in the TARDIS with the Doctor has a three-dimensional emotional life, mm. you don't need to see the family and the ties back home mm-hmm. as long as you're writing it well enough that that three-dimensional mm-hmm. emotional I, life I think is real, un- feels real I think it would be unlikely they'd choose a companion who isn't from contemporary Earth for a different because, reason I think well yeah you would, I, well my, my reasoning is uh, modern day Earth is always the sort of the third setting for Doctor Who you have the past you have the future and then you have more, purely because it's the cheapest place to film, yes. the, the easiest place to film, and so for there's that, yeah. for that third, you wouldn't you wouldn't now have a Victorian. You, I think you still need that grounding. I think mm. you still need because country. it would be weird to have a Victorian companion yeah. and end up in modern day Earth All every three yeah. weeks. Yeah. yeah, and if you had Victoria now, mm. then you'd have to keep on going back to Victorian times, and that's not what Doctor Who does. No. Or else, if you ended up back on contemporary Earth all the time, yeah. you'd just be making the companion look ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. But I think the reason why you have to have a contemporary companion is because if... And, you know, uh, people will say that an identification figure, or people will think of an identification figure in a particular way. You're supposed to... That person's supposed to be your window into the story. But I think if you actually look at what that actually means, then on a more technical level, that's true. If you have... I don't know, to take some random example, at the end of series one, you had that surfboard thing that um, the Slitheen, Margaret Slitheen, was going to use to escape the Earth. And Jack, you've got Jack and Rose. Now, Jack knows what that is, so he doesn't need it explained to him. Mm -hmm. But Rose needs that explained to her because she's from 21st century Earth. Mm -hmm. And then if you go into the past, say in the Shakespeare Code with Martha, 
when people are throwing their piss out of the windows. Mm. And Martha's like, what's going on? And the doctor says, that's just what people did mm. back in Elizabethan times. Again, she needs that explaining to her because she's from 21st century Earth. If the companion is from 21st century Earth, if there's anything that needs explaining to the audience at home, it mm. can just be explained to mm. the companion. And that is, you know, square one, what the companion's there for. Well, yes, yes. And square one, what identification mm. is. Yeah. Well, that was a classic in, in the early days, wasn't it? You know, what, what does that button do there, Doctor? You know, it was, it, it was the, ex, they were the explanation yeah. tool for... <clears throat> and our own emotional But, but expository characters have always got flexible intellect. This is the thing, this is the problem I have with Dan Brown novels. With Dan Brown novels, you have fabulous academics who are supposed to know everything. You mm. can't solve anagrams because because they need someone you you have to ask or can't solve an anagram. Or you have mm. physicists who can't work out simple codes. Mm. And I think that's just that's exactly what I mean. That's what Victoria and, and Jamie were doing all the time. Mm. Well, they were well after their first stories. They yeah. were just from yeah. the nineteen sixties, really, yeah. weren't they? Quite rightly so. Well, when this is where the emotional engagement comes in. If the companion is from the far future, mm. are you supposed to emotionally engage? with somebody whose emotional background, you have no kind of clue yeah. what it would be. Mm. And I'm not talking about just who the parents are, but I'm talking about what the day-to-day -day life would be like. Mm. Yeah. And the same again for somebody like Jamie. Yeah. Jamie, after the Highlanders, just becomes a sort of post-Beatles 1960s lad yeah. running around having fun. Yeah. Because that's what people in the 1960s were doing yeah. at home. So they engaged with him emotionally. With Zoe, you were emotionally engaged with her because she had a nice bottom. <laughs> well, you her. did. <coughs> but I mean, after... <laughs> but after Zoe's first story, again, she just became a late 1960s yeah, yeah. miniskirted yeah. chick you know, listening to yeah. fab and groovy music and having fun adventures, yeah. you know, two years after the Summer of Love, when you could have fab and groovy adventures. You know, it's not f for nothing that in Tomb of the Cybermen, her very second story, Victoria turns up in a miniskirt. Mm. That's a yeah. signal to the audience. You know, we've she's done the story where she's a Victorian. <laughs> From this point forward, mm. she's just going to be the companion. Mm. But there has to be those points of identification. Um, just for, for viewers to feel comfortable or have at least one point of reference, I guess, you know. And this is why Doctor Who kind of started losing audiences all over the place in the 1980s, because the TARDIS was filled with people you couldn't really engage with. The companions became ciphers. Yeah. Than personalities. They so there became, was no emotional the, engagement. The killer moment was that moment in Castrovalba where he assigned duties to his companions or jobs to his companions. It was never really really carried out but that that sort of mindset where companions just become you know and uniform wearing and at its simplest level Adric and Nyssa aren't asking the questions that the viewer at home is asking no. so the viewer at home starts to get lost in the stories because yeah. nobody's explaining what's happening yeah. stuff like Kinder and uh, I don't know Fort of Doomsday even something as simple as Fort of Doomsday <laughs> never really gets explained to the audience at home. Mm. So the audience at home, even in something as simple as that, are slightly floundering, not just on an emotional level, yeah. but also on a storytelling level, because all of a sudden, this stuff, that there's a barrier between the audience and understanding what's happening on screen. Yeah. And that's even with Tegan in it, it's just because they never actually used Tegan for any of that stuff. <laughs> Do you know, that's... Yeah. 
Madness, isn't it? <clears throat> but there you go. Right, anyway, I think we've spoken for long enough. <laughs> yeah, you, <clears throat> yeah, we've been speaking for 14 minutes. <laughs> uh, well, next time... Oh, next time we'll be Simon and Lee again, and we'll be talking about Series 2 from way back in 1964 and 1965. Blimey. Good yeah. luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to be a shock after... Yeah, but at least you can watch all of Series 2. Oh, OK. All of it? Well, apart from two episodes of The Crusade. OK. Wow. Yeah. It's the most complete 1960 series. Wow. Ah, but until then, I was JR. I was Andy. I was Matt. And we'll speak again soon. <laughs>